superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Brett's Richard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She booted. She booted. No, yeah, but there's no box of gimmicks. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Um, nothing major. No, no big, no big news or anything really to talk about this week. Hypothetically speaking, uh, who is not looking forward to seeing you back on TV? Do you think, is there anybody in the back that you're sort of dreading? Like, Oh, I really don't want to run into blank. I gotta be honest with you. I, I am so excited about being there and seeing everybody and there's nobody, nobody that I'm dreading. At all, I'm just excited to be a part of it, and and it's come on, man, it's it's a pretty big deal. I, I really and truly never thought that this would happen. Well, and it did, and I don't think it's uh, weird of us to say that the podcast helped make it happen, don't you think? I would like to think so. Yeah, I think that uh, the our fan base and kind of making a little bit of noise, let everybody know that we're still out here. And Oh, I wasn't patting myself on the back. I meant the fans, you know, people, that's what I said. Yeah. Are a big, a big fan of the podcast and what we're doing here. And all of a sudden, uh, after being dormant for a while, Bruce Pritchard's back in the conversation, baby, to the point that brother love is going to be on your TV. And this time it's not Kofi Kingston. Although if they had Kofi dress up as you and you guys did a mom routine, that would be kind of fun. And if only Diddy could be there as well. Yeah, I don't think he's invited, but you are. Go pick up your tickets right now at boxofgimmicks.com. We want to see you at our biggest show ever, Barclays Center, January 19th. And don't forget, Philadelphia, the Royal Rumble is right around the corner. Of course, that 25th anniversary of Raw, that's the go-home episode of Raw, just in time for the Royal Rumble. They're doing a huge spectacular that following weekend in Philadelphia. You'll have an NXT show on Saturday night, and as soon as that's over, Come straight to the old ECW arena, right at the corner of Swanson and Rittner. That's where Bruce Pritchard and I will be doing our things. And if you're not really in the NXT, well, come at 8 o'clock. See Jake the Snake Roberts do his one-man show. And as soon as that's over, we're going to give you guys a few minutes to get over from the NXT show. And then Bruce and I have something very special planned. Uh, I don't think that everybody is... If you're an ECW fan, you should come to this show. Is that fair to say? Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. If you're a fan of wrestling, man, you just like old school wrestling and you're one of those damn Philly fanatics, then come on out here and be a part of something to wrestle with live. And it, 
You want to hear Jake the Snake Roberts, man? His one-man show, I understand, is extremely captivating as well. I'm looking forward to that myself. Yeah, I mean, he's going to tell you some real funny stories, but some emotional stories, too. And then Bruce and I are going to tell dick jokes for two hours. It's going to be a great time, man. Pick up your tickets for Philadelphia right now <laughs> at pronouncepal.com. Hey, do, can I get a request? I, I know that when you have your double secret meeting with Vince McMahon uh, at that 25th anniversary of Raw, I will not be in the room. But can I at least have you take him a Pronouns Pal shirt? I think that would be awesome. A double medium? A schmedium. I mean, that's what he likes, right? But a, Yeah, a pro- he wears a double medium. If you could get a picture... With Vince holding a pronouns pal T-shirt, the internet would melt. Do you know that? Well, I think the internet will be safe. I doubt we'll even be in the same building. I'll probably, if whatever building Vince is going to be in, they'll probably have me as far away from that as they possibly can. There's been lots of questions as to whether or not I'm going to the show. Yes, I am, and I'll be in the crowd with you, slapdicks. I'm not part of Raw. I don't know why. People think that that is Conrad coming. Oh. Yes. In the crowd, like a fan. I'm a fan. If, what are, what are if only I could, if only I could do a brother love and then I could introduce Conrad, the Alabama dream and you oh. come out wearing the, the whole Akeem outfit would be off the chart. Let me just say that's not happening today or ever. Not but yet. We, we do have a, Listen, <laughs> Hey, hang on. Wait a minute. Have we been having, I want you to think about something. Had we been having this conversation six weeks ago, I would have laughed in your face at the thought of me being on the raw 25th anniversary. As a matter of fact, you and I discussed it many times. You asked me to come and sit with you in the crowd at the raw 25th I thought anniversary. It would be great. I've got a fun weekend plan that weekend. We're going to have fun with our buddy Rosenberg. We're going to be checking out our, our man, Sam Roberts. Of course, Dan Soder's up there. You know, Shuley's going to be in town. We're going to have a blast with our buds. And I thought, let's just make a weekend out of it. We'll go see Book of Mormon, eat a steak at our buddy's restaurant. It'll be awesome. And uh, you're like, nope, flying home. Nope, not doing it. Because I wanted to go. I think going to the Manhattan Center, and we should mention, we're coming on the heels of the creation of Raw uh, I did make a flub last week, or I guess you heard it last week. We taped it a couple of weeks ago because I went on vacation. So I gave the wrong date, so my apologies. But either way, whatever. I've always wanted to see Raw in that original building. And now that I have enough access to say, hey, can you get me in? That's going to be fun for me. And I wanted you to go, and you were not having it. And now you're going. <laughs> hey, can you get me into the original building, too? I know a guy. Okay. Well, in that case, then maybe we could work something out. Uh, hypothetically, would you prefer, obviously it's not up to you, but do, do you have a preference, Barclays or the Manhattan Center? I want to do both. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Listen to you. Now I'm getting pissed. Hey, hey, y'all want me. Here's the conditions. You're going to have to do both. You get me, get me one of them like pedal cabs, you know, what are they called, pedicabs? And get one of them guys with them bicycles, get me on over there to the Manhattan Center, and I'll do both. Can you imagine how long that would take to get, well, that would be ridiculous. That would be funny, though. It could be one of, like, the original skits with Bobby Heenan trying to get in. That's exactly what I was thinking. After all these years, Bruce Pritchard's trying to get back in. That'd be hilarious. Well, it would, it would be, they could have Brother Love appear in one, and then Bruce could be trying to just get in in general, and either one (laughs) not be allowed in. I love it, and it would make so you worked here. Happy. You're not on the list, sir. You know we're gonna have some free time on Sunday. Maybe, maybe we'll shoot some vignettes and put them up at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. If you're as excited about Brother Love going back as we are, our friend Chris McDonald has come through like he always does. There's a hilarious video 
we've all seen the WWE open where it says then now forever. That was a pretty fun one there for brother love. Uh, we're, we're sort of filibustering longer than we normally do. Any follow up you had on our creation of raw episode before we get to the main event today? No, cause I've had fun just doing all the different media and all the different podcasts that I've done over this past week talking about raw. And I keep going back to, I feel like, well, if you just listen to our archives, listen to the raw creation of raw episode, you would have all those answers. It was a lot of fun and it was a labor of love. It was one of those episodes that I liken to the Houston wrestling episode where it came from a place that uh, there was a lot of love, and, and it was one of my babies that I, I truly point to with a lot of pride. You know, it feels like it's kind of full circle, man. We did creation of Raw, and you know now we know you're going back to Raw, and then we're going to be doing our podcast right there at Barclays, which is a big deal. We got tons of support uh, from everybody in the wrestling media, whether it was Dave Meltzer or Wade Keller or Ryan Satin or Mike Johnson or. Literally every single website, every podcast, every radio, everyone we reached out to said yes. And we're very appreciative and we'd be happy to reciprocate that at any time. Uh, hit us up. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And thank you for all the support. But it's a pretty big deal, man, to uh, be going back to New York, not only for the 25th anniversary of Raw, but we're going to be in there with the Brooklyn Nets, which is a big deal. And... All right, all right, all right. It's time for the main event. What happened when the Rockers came to the World Wrestling Federation? And I should get this out of the way right up front. My household has the flu. Everyone in my office, everyone in my house, everyone's been sick. So uh, if I'm a little hit or miss today and uh, sound a little bit like I uh, have swallowed a frog, it's because I'm under the weather. But I'm fired up. There is no sick. Hey, I'm still here, Daddy-O. Uh, let's talk about the Rockers, man. I'm pretty fired up about this one. They lost the poll. I decided to say, man, let's do it anyway. We're right upon their 26th year anniversary of them breaking up. It happened back in January of 92, and that's the reason we're covering them now. But I think a lot of people, myself included as a youngster, I thought that the Rockers just became a tag team when they came to the WWF in 1988. But, of course, that's not the case, and we're going to try to run through the beginning with you now that actually been teaming up for a couple of years before they ever made their debut there. And I think everybody listening to this show by now knows that Sean got hooked up with Jose Lothario to start training to become a wrestler. Uh, Sean's real name is Michael Sean. So his wrestling name was just a play off of that. Eventually Jose sends him to work with Bill Watts in October of 84. And I imagine that may have been when you first had an opportunity to meet Sean, right? Actually, first met Sean. We were using Jose in uh, in '84 in Houston. Jose would come in and do different shots for us in the Houston territory because he was a huge star in Houston. One of the uh, top guys didn't necessarily headline all over the territory, but was a top draw and made a lot of money in Houston. So Sean was training with Jose from time to time. Sean would accompany Jose on his trips to Houston, and that was the first time that I met him in 1984 when he was training with Jose. He would come back and he would watch the matches and just be a sponge and try to absorb whatever he could. But the interesting thing is, is when Jose sent Sean to go do TV for Bill Watts, he hadn't even smartened Sean up to the business per se. He had trained him, taught him some things, but he never really smartened him up to the inner workings of the wrestling business yet. So I think a lot of people who 
are familiar with Sean and his run in the 90s know Sean's mentor as Jose Lothario, and mostly from an on-screen standpoint. But Jose Lothario was a pretty big deal back in the day, right? Jose was one of those guys that pretty much he wrestled in uh, California, wrestled in Florida, and made his home in Texas. And he lived in San Antonio. But he was, wherever he went, where there was a strong Hispanic community, Jose did great business. He was a tremendous, tremendous worker and was able to connect, especially with that Hispanic market, and draw big money. Do you remember anybody else who you could, you know, lump in with Sean as being a Jose Lothario student that we may remember? No, I don't. Uh, I don't, I don't think there's nobody that made it when I say really made it, yeah. uh, in the business. I don't think there was anybody other than Sean. Well, I mean, it's kind of all downhill from there anyway, right? Uh, it really is because when you look at, <laughs> if you could just point to, Hey, that was my student, I think, Sean Michaels being your student is a pretty good resume. Once Sean makes it to town for Bill Watts, he starts riding with the Rock and Roll Express for a few weeks, and Sean even credits them with teaching him a lot about the business. And I find that kind of ironic, considering the comparisons that we're going to draw a little later. Does Sean ever share any stories with you about traveling with the Rock and Rolls when he first broke in the business? Well, sure, because he had no clue what, you know, what the real inner workings were. So... That was a pretty fast education, being in the car and being able to ride around with a couple guys that were a little bit older than he was, but they were on top of the business, especially in 1984 in Mid-South. They were the shiznit. That's what I was going to say. As far as great tag teams from the era, I mean, there was nobody better to learn from than the Rock and Rolls for Watts in 84, right? No, they were on top working with Midnight Express and just everybody, but they were setting the territory on fire. And it's, it's fun that he rode with them, too, because Rock and Roll Express were really uh, a smaller bunch of guys than maybe a generation before when you had, you know, the Ole Andersons and the Thunderbolt Pattersons. And it, you had lots of big dudes, the Road Warriors. And now, you know, the Rock and Roll Express are a little smaller. So it's pretty cool that Sean was riding with them because, obviously, we're going to see the comparisons that we're going to draw here in a little bit. Uh, Sean also did a little bit of traveling during this time with a show favorite here, Terry Taylor. He says that Terry taught him a lot about working as a baby face and the psychology behind it. And we talk a lot about baby faces and heels and psychology on the show here. But I don't know that we've really broke down the psychology of working as a baby face. Can you give some examples of that, Bruce? Do you think that uh, Sean writing with Terry Taylor is maybe what made him so cocky? Get it? This is going to be a fun show. I can already tell. <laughs> no, there, there definitely is a psychology. And I always like to tell young talent that is coming up through the ranks. If you really want to learn how to be a great baby face, go get as many tapes as you can of Ricky Morton and watch him sell and watch how Ricky didn't have a lot of offense. It was more Ricky selling that made him the consummate baby face and the top guy that he always was throughout his career. Uh, Sean befriended an enhancement talent by the name of Tony Falk. And uh, Sean says that Tony is the guy who actually taught him Carney. Because they were traveling to a town one day, and Tony said something like, we're going to the Shizzo, and Sean had no idea what he was talking about. So Tony taught him Carney. We've never really spent a lot of time talking about this, and I know we've touched on it briefly before. Did you ever hear Vince speak Carney? 
from time to time, but not a whole lot. I think Vince really was trying to shun a lot of the carny aspects of the wrestling business, in particular the carny speak. But sometimes it just is an easier way to speak, and sometimes when you're around guys that understand it, it's just easier to communicate without anybody else knowing what the hell you're talking about. Uh, when do you remember Carney sort of ceasing to be a thing? Did you pinpoint an era, a year, <sighs> a pay-per-view? Probably, uh, you know, maybe in the 90s at some point. Just it, it kind of faded out really right. more than anything. Was there anybody who, who held on to it longer than some others? I think all of us old-timers did. I think that the guys that had broken into the business at an earlier time – uh, you could always you could always count on Hogan to give that kids our kid or you know it's it just the old timers spoke it and we could understand it. A lot of the new guys coming through didn't understand it, didn't speak it, didn't know what the hell you were talking about. So when the era of the car ride went away, there was not a lot of opportunity to sit and tell stories and teach some of these younger kids. You're on a plane all the time. You don't get to tell stories. Uh, there's a lot of 300-mile car rides even today. Uh, so chat me up about um, the handshake. You know, this doesn't belong here, but since we're talking about carny language, there's always been like the wrestler handshake that we've heard about, and that's not really even a thing anymore, right? When did that go away, and what was the purpose behind it? It went away for me when I went to New York. And, you know, Vince, I remember the first time, meeting Vince and it was, you know, firm hand, regular handshake. And Vince made a comment one time about somebody giving him a working handshake and how he hated that. It's just, what the hell? It's like a limp fish. But the handshake for a lot of guys was just a way to show, Hey, I'm a worker. And, uh, if they had a nice soft handshake and an easy kind of touch and that's all you had to do, it was likened to how you worked in the ring. You're not going to hurt me. You're going to take care of me. Blah, right. blah, blah. Yeah. And do you but Vince hated it. Do you remember somebody coming into the locker room and doing the old school handshake and it's sort of catching some guys off guard or pissing somebody off in the WWF? You know, really one, I, I want to say in that era of the nineties and that the attitude era of those guys like Steve Austin and even Taker and a lot of those guys, when new talent would come in, it was more of a, you know, give me a handshake, shake my hand like a man, damn it. And that caught on more and more to where that old school kind of soft working handshake went away. We're going to talk a lot about pissing off the boys in a little while because it's part of the rocker stories, but shaking everybody's hands was a thing back in the day too. Do you think that's still prevalent in the wrestling business today? I think it should be. I just think it's a kind of a sign of respect for your locker room and for everybody else around just to go at least, especially if you don't know someone, go and introduce yourself and, and say hello. That's not the rule for outsiders, though. It's a rule for the performers. Does somebody smarten you up early in your career or when you go to a new territory, or is it just sort of understood that if you're there as one of the boys before and after every show, go start shaking hands? Yeah, when you arrive 
<laughs> when you arrive. And if there's somebody in that locker room you don't know, go over and introduce yourself. I was smartened up to that aspect of it to always introduce myself and shake someone's hand. Uh, probably from the time I was maybe 13, 14 years old. And it was just something that was at, it was etiquette. Right. And it was something, it was something I did in business. If I walked into a room in a meeting, even outside of the wrestling business and there are a bunch of people sitting around, I will go around and introduce myself. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's expected, but we hear a lot about guys getting heat because they're not shaking hands. Do you remember there being, a set of guys or a guy who maybe didn't follow protocol and really pissed everybody off? I think that there were, you know, um, there were perceptions of guys that would come in and maybe someone would walk in and a young guy wouldn't get up and go over and say hello to him. Maybe they saw him in the hallway. But the perception was when, for example, Undertaker walks into a dressing room and everybody comes over and says hello to him and maybe one person doesn't. Well, maybe they saw him in the hallway and they felt that was enough. Right. But it's, for the most part, I always, when I would walk into a dressing room, I would walk around and just kind of do the rounds and say hello to everybody in the dressing room. Put my stuff down and take my spot. And then the next person who ever came in, you know, they would usually do the same thing as well. And are you doing that like every night or just when yeah. you start a tour? No, pretty much every night. Okay. So we're together, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but we're doing it every night over and over. Do you think that's still the case now? I don't know. Yeah. Eventually, Watts and Sean down in Kansas City to work for Bob Geigel, and Sean says that Watts tells him something like, you can tell, you can take a hell of an ass kicking kid, but if you're not careful, you'll wind up taking one your whole career. And obviously Sean was being used as an enhancement guy and Watts is trying to look out for him and give him an opportunity to go to another territory. And now that he's learned some things, maybe he can get some wins under his belt, but there is sort of a fine line there that we haven't really talked about on the show. So what's your opinion here, Bruce, when it comes to like a guy, like a George South, who everyone agrees was a hell of a hand, as they like to say, why does he wind up looking at the lights most of the time? This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used PaintYourLife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now, I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from PaintYourLife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple, too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom, we're up and running. You see, PaintYourLife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the PaintYourLife.com has my back. And they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about PaintYourLife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam, you're good to go. Maybe Grandpa never got to meet his grandson. With PaintYourLife.com, that can become a reality. You can put people and places together together even if they've never been there. 
You pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes, and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks. But you work hand-in-hand with the artist to get every detail perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going, to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got, and I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Because he did it on a national stage and he did it he, there wasn't anything to break him out of that. Sean, starting out, when you start out as a young kid in the business, you can shake that off after a few years if you have a look and you have a charisma and you have a personality about you. I think that George was put in a position, especially by doing it on the uh, Superstation TBS, where that was a, man, that was a worldwide stage. So it's kind of hard to break out from that. It's not impossible. But once you get pigeonholed there, you're kind of pigeonholed there. So the theory back in the day was, and this is maybe even something that is worth discussing today. If you're an underneath guy and you're losing a lot and you're not happy with your spot and you've certainly been positioned as an enhancement talent, the only way to get out of that spot is to go to another territory, right? Get away. Yeah, get away. And you see guys do that with the WWE now. You know, there's an underneath guy. He asks for his release. He goes and works the Indies. He goes to Japan. He comes back. You know, AJ Styles. Yeah. Luke Gallows. Luke Gallows was a guy who was very much an underneath guy. And now he's multiple tag team champ and selling a bunch of merch. And I mean, there's dozens of examples like that. But the point being, you have to go away and come back in order to be viewed in a different light. I mean, has anybody done that any better in the last two years, maybe than Cody Rhodes, right? Cody Rhodes, Jinder Mahal, exactly. you know, he, he went away, changed, changed his body, you know, and came back with a completely different attitude and they put him back in there. Cody, like I said, Cody Rhodes is another great example where he will be 10 times more valuable. The longer he stays away, probably the better. And he's doing all right for himself right now, doing some great stuff with New Japan and ROH. So by the time it's it's right for Cody to come back, man, he'll be on top of the world. He'll be another level from where he was when he left. Yes, and I, and I will never forget the day that Dusty got inducted into the Hall of Fame and Cody did that speech, inducting his father into the Hall of Fame. And I was sitting with Vince, and we looked at each other and went, damn, that kid's got it. 
Whatever happened there, you know, I, I don't know, but Cody, Cody had it then. He's got it now and he's only going to make himself more valuable the longer he stays away. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm anxious to see what they're doing. Have you seen this, uh, promotion they're doing for uh, their own self-funded show with him and the Young Bucks in September? Yeah, I think it's great. That is pretty cool. I, I saw yesterday. I thought it was tremendous. I mean, good for those guys. Uh, yeah. Sean's first match in Kansas City was in front of a tiny crowd where he was in a tag match with Dave Peterson, and across the ring stood Scott Hall and Dan Spivey. That's pretty fun to me to think in 10 years that ring would really be Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, and Waylon Mercy. Uh, Danny Spivey's a guy we haven't spent a ton of time talking about. Uh, any fun Spivey stories you can share with us? Why don't you think he didn't get a shot sooner rather than later with Vince? I know he came in as Waylon, but by then, you know, he had already put some uh, damage on his body and maybe he wasn't who he was a few years prior. Dan Spivey is one of the nicest guys you, one of the most unassuming nicest guys you will ever want to meet. He really calm, really kind of low key, mellow. But if you take Danny and just cross that line with him, one of the scariest, toughest human beings walking the face of the earth. And I'll put him up there with Haku as far as badassery with Dan Spivey. So Dan had had, you know, Dan had had a run with Vince and, uh, in the early eighties. I think that the problem with Dan was he looked too much like Hulk, but yet not. He didn't have the muscular body like Hulk, but in the facial features and, and similar body, um, just not as defined as Hulk. I think that's what hurt Dan early on in his career. And then the injuries took their toll. Kansas City is where Sean meets a young babyface by the name of Marty Jannetty. Eventually, they start riding together and partying together, so they're not yet a tag team, just friends. But, Bruce, how common was this back in the day, that friends are made and then riding together eventually becomes tagging together? That's pretty common, right? It is because you always want to, if you if you get to get along outside of the ring, you're going to get along inside of the ring. And if you guys are always traveling together, it really and truly does make for great tag team partners because you can think like your partner and you can anticipate what they're going to do and vice versa. So it works. Parting is a little bit of a challenge for Sean at this point because he's underage. So that tells you how early he's wrestling here. But one night at the bar, he has an opportunity to hook up with his wrestling idol for a beer, Mr. Ric Flair. How many guys do you think in the early 90s era looked up to Ric Flair as their favorite wrestler? We've all heard about Steve Austin, Shawn Michaels, Hunter, Everybody says Rick was their favorite. Why do you think that is? Well, he was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, and that was the goal. If you were in the business and your goal wasn't to be the World Heavyweight Champion and to travel the world to represent the company and be able to be in one town one night and a completely different territory the next and main eventing all over the place, that's who you wanted it to be. And when Rick came in, Rick carried himself like a world champion, and everybody idolized him. They wanted to be Ric Flair. Ever hear about any fun Rick and Sean partying stories? <laughs> you know, there, there's the the old nature it story that Sean always likes to tell about him taking uh, Razor and Diesel and Hunter and uh, the kid and a bunch of people out one night in New York City, and they ended up at scores and Sean pulls out the American Express Platinum and goes, boys, we're nature it tonight, and picked up all the tab on everything and 
many several thousands of dollars later was like, ugh. <laughs> but he lived the life. He definitely lived the life. Sean and Marty team up for the first time, and they take on Scott Hall and Dan Spivey again. And this time, everything clicks. They know they have something based on their timing and the ring and just knowing what the other guy was going to do. And that probably comes from just spending a lot of time with each other, right? That's where the chemistry is born. Sure, and they had natural chemistry together because I think Marty's a few years older than Sean. But they had a very similar ring style, and Marty had more experience, but they just they worked the same way and were able to work off of each other very well. A few months in, though, Sean gets a call from Kansas City, and Jose is asking him to come back to San Antonio because the Blanchards had just sold Southwest Championship Wrestling, and now it's going to be renamed Texas All-Star Wrestling. This is quite a bump. Sean's only making like 250 to $350 a week in Kansas City. He's offered $500 a week guaranteed, and he's going home to his hometown. So he gives his notice to Bob Geigel, and they position Sean Michaels as the hometown hero there in San Antonio. And his gimmick is he's going to be like a cowboy. So Sean recruits like 15 of his friends and family to come to the show and bring signs. But it was brutal. And it's not too long before Jose's pushed out by Chavo. And Chavo sees himself as the top baby face. So eventually Sean starts teaming with Paul Diamond as a part of the American Force tag team. And they win the territory's tag titles for a few weeks there. And that's sort of fun to look back on to me because those guys who are tag teaming here are going to be against each other at WrestleMania six when the Rockers take on the Orient Express. It's not too long, and Chavo's out, and Gary Hart is in, replacing him as the booker. And this is a Texas territory, so it's right in your wheelhouse, Bruce. Can you tell us anything about when the Blanchard sold and all the upheaval that caused? Because it feels like it's almost hot potato with management, from the Blanchards to Jose to Chavo to Gary. It definitely was, and the the territory was not doing well at the time anyway. Fred Barron was a car salesman. He had car lots in the San Antonio area, and he was a sponsor for Joe Blanchard's uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling at the time. At first, I want to say that uh, Wahoo had kind of brought Joe uh, or Fred Barron into the wrestling deal, and uh, Wahoo and Blanchard had had their outs over different times, uh, especially when it came to Tully. But during this time, Joe just wanted out of the promotion, didn't want to do it anymore, and Fred Barron came in. He had money, and they convinced him that, you know, you'll make a lot of money being a wrestling promoter. Jose was there. He was local, and he was a friend of Fred Barron's, and he had ideas. And I think that, you know, Jose, the nice thing about it was at least Jose wasn't looking to put himself on top. He was looking to bring in other talent, and it was just a a very tumultuous time. Fred was one of those guys that he was going to listen to the last guy he talked to, and whoever that was, that was where he was going. So it was, you know, from Jose to Chavo to Gary to uh, going out of business shortly thereafter. Eventually, Sean sees the writing on the wall, and Jose recommends that he send tapes to the WWF and the AWA Sean and Jose felt like the NWA and Crockett Promotions already had the Rock and Roll Express, and that was sort of what Sean was looking to be, is the good-looking white meat babyface. Hypothetically, how do you think Sean would have fared in Crockett at the time? It's sort of fun to armchair quarterback stuff like that. 
horribly. He was too young. He was too young, and I think they would have t- taken advantage of him and not. I don't think that they would have been able to really get the true potential out of Shawn Michaels at the time. I think that Shawn going to the AWA and really be able to get that experience under his belt is what made a big difference for him. Well, the AWA did take an interest in those tapes, and they fly him out to Vegas for TV. He winds up signing a deal with Greg Gagne, and he thinks he's going to be wrestling singles. But before you know it, he finds out that they've been looking for a tag partner for Marty Jannetty. Marty actually takes credit as dropping Sean's name as a potential partner around the same time that Sean was sending this tape. So eventually it all worked out. Um, do you think that Sean sort of always wanted to be a single star, but being in a tag team was sort of his way into the big time? Absolutely. Sean's always wanted to be the star. He only works uh, two singles matches for Vern before Vern sets him down and says, we want an AWA version of the Rock and Roll Express. So they meet and discuss the name, the image, the direction, the whole deal. And allegedly, Greg Gagne wants to call them the Country Rockers, but the boys didn't think that would work. So they suggested the Midnight Rockers, and Sean says his inspiration for that was the song Living After Midnight by Judas Priest. Do you remember hearing that the country rockers was a suggestion? How fucking great is that? God, if only they would have come out and sang the song. Spend our days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be a home with my country rockers tonight. They tell... um Vern, the idea of the Midnight Rockers, and Sean wrote this. If you ever want to know why Vern went out of business eventually, all you have to do is keep reading. Do you think the people are going to confuse that name with rocking chairs, he asked? Marty and I were stunned. We looked at each other and said, I don't think so. Vern just didn't get it. Then there was a minute of silence. We looked at each other again. Was he working us? Is he this big of an idiot? We walked out of the office thinking, how did he get rocking chairs out of that? Vern's question marked a turning point in my career. I began turning away from the older guys, reasoning that they didn't understand us or where the business was going. There was a huge generation gap. I don't feel like that's unique to that point, though. I think this is always a problem in wrestling or really in any business where maybe the owner or the boss is a little older and starts to feel somewhat out of touch. Wouldn't you agree, Bruce? Well, I think that when you take a Midwestern wrestling promoter who had spent his entire life, you know, as part of the U.S. Olympic team and a great amateur who just didn't, you know, ah, these damn kids with their damn rocking chairs all over the place and they just think they can rock out any time they want. There was, there was a, Huge pushback, not even so much about not understanding. There was just such a pushback against anything that Vince was doing in New York. Those damn Hollywood people and the uh, New Yorkers and damn Yankees. Um, that, yeah, he was out of touch. Vern was definitely out of touch. Watts was out of touch in a lot of ways. But you got to give Watts credit for allowing a booker like Bill Dundee to come in and do some new different things. And it, and it worked and it hit right away. Thank God for Bill Dundee. Um, but some guys, man, Vern wanted his finger on that. And that's, that's a funny story, but I can actually, I, I believe it a hundred percent because I can hear that being said like it was yesterday, but it's not unique to Vern. I mean, 
Vince didn't know what balling was for MVP or what light of fatty for this pimp daddy or 420 or he didn't know what any of that stuff was. And I don't think it's necessarily bad on either of them. They're just, they're old. Right. They're, they're older. And at least with, uh, you know, Vern, he, man, he stayed in that Midwest kind of cocoon and that's what he knew. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a young man's business and you have to, you have to surround yourself. The difference is Vince does surround himself with younger people. Um, Vern surrounded himself with himself and didn't want to hear about what these damn young whippersnappers are talking about. Which is pretty fun for you to make fun of because off the air, I often refer to you as Grandpa Simpson because I just picture you half the time trying to make Facebook live work and you're like in your office screaming at the sky. All the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a daily routine for me. Uh, as the guy. Blasted clouds you! As far as. Only the, this for TV. <laughs> maybe one. Oh, fuck. As far as the uh, look goes, Sean writes, then we started to think about what we would wear. At the time, Marty was wearing long tights with fur tiger stripes and a tiger stripe around his boots. I liked that and told him that's what we should go with. But we were a little concerned that we might be seen as blatantly stealing from the Rock and Roll Express. Of course, Sean and Marty convince themselves that it's different because they don't wear tiger stripes. I mean, but the impression in the business when you see the Midnight Rockers, I mean, it's a blatant ripoff of the Rock and Roll Express, right? Well, those the Rock and Roll Express, they were all about rocking chairs and uh, being on the express train or something. And that's what everybody was confusing them. It is a blatant ripoff. Sure it is. It's, 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 but at the time, who cared? I mean, they, you know, one was a Rock and Roll Express and one were Midnight Rockers. Uh, you got two rockers and two different territories. So, yeah, everybody was blatantly ripping off everybody. But demolition was definitely not a ripoff of the road war. Not at right? all, no. Okay. Uh, Good as long as we got that clear and straight now. Was the Renegade a ripoff of the Ultimate Warrior? Definitely. Okay. All right. Just checking. All yeah. right. So let's talk about Marty. Uh, Marty was an amateur wrestler in the state of Georgia, and he qualified for the state championship tournaments in his last three years of high school. He even took up boxing and won a couple of Golden Gloves events, and then eventually. Starts wrestling in junior college in Alabama and becomes a two-time qualifier for the NJCAA. Uh, it's worth mentioning, I guess, that Marty grew up a big wrestling fan, except his Ric Flair was Bullet Bob Armstrong, who was certainly a staple of the South, right? Well, Bullet Bob Armstrong was the Ric Flair of Georgia and Alabama and Pensacola, Florida. Man, Bullet Bob was the ultimate stud. You think about it, he was a fireman by day. And he was every woman's, uh, calendar man with the chiseled body and just, uh, Bob was, Bob was the shiznit. Still is. Why do you think he gets more love? Is it just because it was Georgia, Alabama and Florida and it wasn't New York or Chicago or something? Yeah, I think because Bob, you know, here's the thing. He doesn't get more love because he really didn't venture out beyond that. But you also have to understand. He didn't have to venture out beyond that. He made a great living, living where he, where he was from, man. And now he lives in, in Pensacola and 
he didn't have to go and travel all over the place and go to different territories because he was able to stay over in the area that he had always been. So that's, that's the magic. Pat Patterson used to always talk about it wasn't the guys that could say, Oh, I've worked here. I've worked here. I've worked there. I've worked there. It was the guy that says, yeah, I've got two houses here. And they even offer you 120 night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120 night low price guarantee. So you know you paid the perfect price. I mean, you talk about a one, two punch, a knockout, if you will. Oh, I can't believe we're still doing this. Score big with a perfect bed. Head on over to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow, baby. Head on over to mattressfirm.com slash podcast. That's right, baby. Start saving money today. All right. So we know this is an awful, awful, awful commercial with terrible humor throughout it. But this is serious. If you enjoy the podcast, and you might even remotely be in the market for a mattress at any time in the next year, go cruise over and check out mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast right now. Uh, When I did it, and I actually told my mom and dad to check it out because they're the sponsor this week, mom and dad picked up a new bed. So uh, they've been looking for one. They found the deal they were looking for, and you will too. It's mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast. And over the summer, Marty found... What he had been looking for when he realized, man, working for this moving company sucks. I'm going to try to get in the wrestling business. And he lucks up and he meets Jerry Oates, who trains him, and he eventually gets into the business. And as soon as he gets to CSW, they immediately put him in a tag team, and they put him with Tommy Rogers. Now, not the Rogers you're thinking about from the Fantastics. This guy's actually Tommy Lane, but for some reason they're calling him Tommy Rogers, and they put him together as the Uptown Boys. And here they're dressing sort of like the Rock and Roll Express with the arm and leg ties that they wore. This feels like a theme a little bit here. Why don't the Rock and Roll Express get the credit they deserve as innovators, do you think? Well, then you got to give the credit, I think, to uh, Bill Dundee and Jerry Lawler for even coming up with the Rock and Roll Express because Ricky and Robert from the beginning thought, oh, my God, what the hell are we doing here? But they were able to put them together in Memphis, Tennessee, and take that, Bill Dundee took him to Mid-South, set that territory on fire with a couple of guys that were considered too small for the wrestling business in the Louisiana Territory. Um, but the Rock and Roll Express, they were the first, they were the originals, and they were the best. After they split up, Marty teamed up briefly with Bulldog Bob Brown. And uh, Marty says he learned a lot of psychology from Brown Who's obviously much older. Bruce, you met Bulldog, right? Any stories of him? You know, I, I literally have only met him. Hi, how are you doing in the Kansas City area? But I've heard a lot of stories about Bulldog Bob Brown being, and this is terrible to say, and everybody in Kansas City is going to call in and tell us how wrong I am. But Bob had a reputation for being one of the most boring uh, wrestlers in the business and uh, one of the worst payoff guys as well. I like it when we bury guys right in the middle of the show. Well, you know, I mean, I again, I, I don't know Bob other than saying hello to him a few times, but he, no, uh, I, they the just best. had a reputation. No, nobody, you go ask anybody back in the territory days, ask Flair where he hated to go and defend the title, and quote he's going to tell you. Quote unquote, it was, little shit towns in Kansas. Yes, uh, yeah. and and Bulldog, you know, he wasn't he he was a damn solid, you know, short guy, stumpy guy, but he owned he owned the town. 
So it was, you had to do it his way, but uh, it was nice to me, but I never heard any good things when it came to payoffs from the Kansas City Territory just, ever. It just tickles me. This guy's been dead 20 years. You're like, I only met him once. And it was just, hi, how are you? But God, he was the shits. He was the shits. <laughs> Fuck him. Only in wrestling. I met him one time, but he was a real asshole. I mean, not to me. I just heard about it. Uh, yeah. so during these early days, a bunch of the guys were ribbing Scott Hall and charged a bunch of shit to his room at the hotel and Marty signed the bill, not realizing what was up. So when Scott sees that the next day at the arena, Hall beat the shit out of Marty when Marty was asleep. Did you ever hear that story? Yes, I did. And, and Hall didn't take it too kindly and Hall could beat the shit out of you. Do you remember there being ribs like that where guys were? Charging shit to somebody else's room. Was that like all the time? Is this the normal protocol? You put some shit on my room and I go upside that head. Well, I depend, probably depends on how much at the tab is. And especially, especially if you're working in the Kansas city territory. <laughs> okay. Then, uh, of course it's going to be the shits that bulldog Brown has anything to do with it, but no, it, it's, through the years, and that would piss guys off sometimes. You go down to check out the next morning, and all of a sudden you look down, and you've got a $500 bar tab. Yeah, it's going to piss some people off. But it's been done. It's been done through many, many years. I've had it done to me. Yeah, I learned the hard way in L.A. Uh, eventually, Marty gets a chance to wrestle in Japan and works against Tiger Mask, who Marty, of course, says influenced him. And I don't think that Tiger Mask really gets enough Credit. How big of an influence do you think those Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid matches were on this era of young guys? Well, I think especially uh, not only Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid, uh, Tatsumi Fujinami, who was coming over to the States, working the Madison Square Garden shows and also the uh, L.A. Sports Arena, or not Sports Arena show, but the Olympic Auditorium in L.A. Those smaller guys that had these fantastic matches where – we hadn't seen a lot of that in the States. We hadn't seen a lot of that unless you got the Lucha shows, and they were innovators. So whenever anybody would see that, guys would try to duplicate it. They became innovators, and they became the only ones doing it because you didn't have the Dynamite Kid, and you didn't have Tiger Mask on a weekly basis. Marty says that it was Terry Garvin's idea for him and Sean to start riding together in Kansas City. And, of course, years later, Terry is going to be an advocate for bringing Sean and Marty to New York. I know he's not somebody we like to talk about a lot here on the show, but how influential was Terry in their early careers? Well, Terry at the time was working in Kansas City with Bulldog Bob Brown and those guys uh, helping the book and run towns. He was also a local promoter in the area. So whenever there were uh, guys coming in, Terry would handle a lot of their travel and different things. So Terry was very influential. A lot of people coming through Kansas City. Eventually, the AWA comes calling for Marty, and they at the time have national TV on ESPN. So it's a big deal for anybody to have that kind of exposure. Goggles sees something in Marty, though, and offers to bump him up to $700 a week to keep him. But Marty really wants to be on TV and that exposure, so he's out of there. We've talked a lot about how big of a deal it was to be on TBS for Georgia and Crockett. How did ESPN compare to that as far as television exposure? It's a different channel. doesn't have near the penetration. It's a different day part, but it's still national TV. Exactly. It was national TV, and people were all talking about this new thing, ESPN. 
24-hour sports channel. The problem was people hadn't become used to it. They didn't have Sports Center. They didn't have a lot of the go-to shows that ESPN has right now. So the opportunity to have wrestling on a, quote, legitimate sports channel for somebody like Vern Gagne, that was another thing he could point to and say, our wrestling's real. We're on ESPN. So that exposure, the potential of that exposure was definitely attractive. When Marty gets to the AWA, he's working singles for just about three to four weeks before Greg pulls him aside and says they want to create a tag team for the quote-unquote teeny boppers. And they're essentially looking for a rock and roll express type of team. And he asks Marty if he's got anybody in mind, and Marty says, Shawn Michaels. Uh, here's a fun story about the first time Shawn comes to Vegas for the AWA. Allegedly, as the rumor goes, Kurt and Marty have been playing slots for a long time, and when Kurt gets up to leave, Marty scoots over to sit at Kurt's machine, and then Sean sits down where Marty had been sitting for three hours playing slots. And on the very first pull of Marty's machine that Sean is now sitting at, Sean hits triple sevens and wins $750. Marty would write, that was the story of our careers. That'd be a fair analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so fun. Uh, the AWA at the time was losing guys left and right to the WWF. Of course, Hulk Hogan, Bobby Heenan, and Gene Okerlund on down the list. But they're still doing okay. They've got the Road Warriors feuding with the Freebirds. But once the Warriors leave, the crowds are cut in half. When the Birds leave, there goes the other half. So the live crowds are down, way, way down. But ESPN is still a really, really big deal. Um, do you remember ever hearing... Any sort of rumor about Vince trying to buy out Vern specifically just to get the ESPN coverage? No, he had tried to buy Vern out in the AWA years before that. And Vince kind of looked at the ESPN contract when he had the USA contract. He felt that the entertainment side of USA, that that was, first of all, it was a bigger, more well-known cable entity, even in those days. Right. And... He felt that was more valuable. The buyout, attempted buyout with Vern was years before that, or at least a couple years before that. Of course, as a tag team here, Martin, uh, Marty and Sean are going to admit that they are studying tapes of the Midnight Express and a lot of other teams who do lots of double-team moves because they want to have as much synchronization as they can in their matches and really take advantage of that referee's count between the tags. Let's talk about tag team specialists because that was the phrase that was used a lot here to describe both the Rock and Roll Express and then ultimately the Rockers. And I know that this is one that uh, you get a kick out of talking about. Well, I love it because it was an argument that Bill Watts used. Bill Watts, for years, big man territory in uh, the Mid-South Territory. And for Bill to be able to explain to his audience how these two, quote, little guys – are competing with the larger Nikolai Volkovs and Crusher Khrushchevs, Barry Darso's of the world. They had to be tag team specialists. Individually, they don't stand a chance against one of these bigger superstars. However, together, they're so good at being a tag team, they can take down anybody. So they're tag team specialists. And it was something that was used to get the uh, Rock and Roll Express over, and it was a pitch that I used constantly to try and get Vince to do something with the Rockers later on and how to sell them because he didn't get it right away either. 
Uh, Sean wrote, our work resulted in some newfound publicity. Pro Wrestling Illustrated wrote, a, wrote an article on us, and they used an inset picture of us on the cover. And the title read, From Imitators to Innovators. And it was sort of an acknowledgement that they weren't just ripping off the rock and rolls, but were developing a new style. And the article was a very big deal to the guys, and it told them, hey, we're doing something right. How are the boys receiving this, though? You know, because they are clearly sort of borrowing from other guys' ideas in different territories. Do you remember there being any sort of rumblings that somebody had an issue with them doing this? Not really. I think that a lot of guys did look at it as a poor man's version of the Rock and Roll Express. But they were they were different enough in that if they had really been shitty in the ring, then there probably would have been more pushback. But the fact that they could really go in the ring, you could forgive them. That makes any sense. Eventually, the Midnight Rockers start working with the AWA Tag Team Champions, Buddy Rose and Doug Summers. Sherry Martell is their manager. And, of course, we know Sensational Sherry would go on to eventually be Sean's manager once he was a singles wrestler in the WWF. But they have a pretty famous tag match that a lot of tape traders were into in the 90s, and I know uh, it's all over the Internet now. It was the showboat bloodbath. It ends in a DQ, but it gets lots of national exposure because it's on ESPN. And at the time, it's pretty rare to see blood like that on TV, especially in the AWA, because Vern was pretty conservative. What do you think of the showboat bloodbath between Doug Summers, Buddy Rose, and the Rockers here? For an old school match, I thought it was excellent. It was especially taking guys like Doug Summers, who was an excellent worker, but Doug was always missing that it factor. Doug kind of always worked, you know, middle of the card, usually most of his career. Uh, but Buddy Rose was the top guy in Portland and Buddy Rose could go, man. Buddy could work and tell you a great story. Great promo guy. But I do remember the, I guess the initial feedback was, oh my God, too much. The blood was too much and it was just, uh, maybe a little too far for national TV. Does that get the guys in the business talking, you think? Well, I think that the guys in the business for the most part were going, hey, yeah, great match. It was more the people from, you know, Vince's side going, this is too much blood. This is a bloodbath. This is no good. And looking for an opportunity, anything to say, hey, those guys shouldn't be on the air. Right. And use that as as fuel for the fire. Uh, There's a little bit of a story of a rib afterwards where they're trying to do a bit of an old school angle like we've maybe heard about with Ricky Steamboat back in the old mid-Atlantic days. They're having Marty rub his face over and over and over with towel to try to make it look like he's been beat up in the parking lot. And he does it, and then they decide, no, we're not going to do it. So Marty still has a little bit of a scar to this day where he's in the parking lot self-mutilating for this angle that they don't even shoot. You remember hearing about ribs like this? How common was that? Well, I, I don't remember hearing about that, but it was from time to time, yeah, if you wanted something to look, especially when they threw fire, you know, you would go and take the sandpaper to your face to make it look like a burn. And that was to protect the business, man. You got to protect the business. If you got burned in the face, you had to go out and people had to see a scar. Eventually, the Midnight Rockers do win the AW tag titles, AWA tag titles from Rose and Summers. And it goes down at a house show in Minneapolis in January of 87. But Sean thought that was pretty anticlimactic. He would have liked to have seen it happen during the bloodbath 
or sometime in Vegas because that was what he considered their home crowd. And um, when they started this feud, Sean says the place was a quarter, maybe half full. But by the time they were done, the place was sold out. Now, sold out still just about 2,500 folks, but still, it's a marked improvement. When you hear about guys having an impact on a house like that, even though it's just 2,500, in early 87, would that have been on Vince's radar or not so much? I think just simply the fact that they were young and a pretty damn good tag team and really hadn't. Vince wasn't viewing the AWA at that time as this real national um, threat. Threat. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. But he was always looking for new talent and just to see two young guys that could go and be different than something that he had. That was intriguing to him. But, yeah, anytime that you hear any kind of business pick up, that's going to put somebody on the radar. They start, they started to get a little bit of a reputation as partiers and ribbers here. And um, Sean says whenever Larry Nelson would finish an interview, he'd put the microphone down, and then one of the guys would go over and disconnect the mic from its cord. So whenever Larry's ready to go again, the mic doesn't work. And they did it with uh, Greg Gagne because he would always write everything in pencil. So he started to take the pencils, and eventually uh, Greg started bringing a whole box. So they would sharpen them down to nubs and then give them back. So just any little thing they could to entertain themselves. And, he, you know, Kirk sort of kept this going where they, start, he's, they started to put locks on all their shit. Are these guys just sort of natural ribbers, and is that one of the reasons we're going to get to a, a bit of a reputation in the WWF by the time we get there? Yes, and the reputation definitely preceded them. You know, it's funny, the, the pencil story. I'll give you a rib that Pat Patterson and I did on Vince. So Vince always had, we always had, uh, Dixon Ticonderoga number two pencils, yellow number two pencils. Used to have them sharpened to a point. Vince would usually only use them once, maybe twice, max. And sharp, you'd get the box of pencils. Uh, they'd be sharpened, points up, dull, points down. Okay, so if the racer's in there, that means it's a dull one. That's no good. Pat and I painstakingly took every one of his pencils, and we broke the leads just enough so that you could put the leads back into the pencil still sharp. But as soon so as you when applied Vin- pressure, it was broken. So as soon as Vince went to put any pressure down, yeah, the pencil was gone. And he would take out a second one and the second one, take out a third one, third one. And then the whole fucking box would go flying. <laughs> but Pat and I would just sit there just as straight face as straight face could be like, oh, what the hell? It must have been a bad box of pencils. Fuck you, bros. God damn it, Patterson. I know it was you. And we what? We didn't sharpen. We didn't touch your pencils, man. Points up. Dull down, man. We didn't touch those fucking pencils. <laughs> But, yeah, that was a kind of a good one. You get people with pencils that way. I wonder if he still does that. Because Br- Briscoe, Briscoe did that to me one night at a Raw. I had a box of pencils, a, a literal pencil box at gorilla position. And Briscoe went in one night and did the exact same thing to me, broke every one of my friggin' pencils and put them neatly back into the box perfectly. I might have thrown those that night, too. Rockers uh, have a little bit of a feud with Bad Company in the AWA, and that's interesting to note because it's Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond. Later, of course, they would be the Orient Express, and that is 
a rematch from WrestleMania six before it ever happens, which is kind of fun. We haven't talked a lot about Paul Diamond and Pat Tanaka. How did you guys bring them in as the Orient Express and why was the decision made to put Paul under a mask? Well, I was a big I was a big fan of, of Paul even going back to his days with Texas All Star Wrestling with Sean and seeing Tanaka and Paul in the AWA with these guys. Man, they tore the house down. So I, I knew Pat Pat Tanaka was uh, Duke Kamuka's son, I believe. That's right. But I knew Pat from Florida. I mean, every time we'd go down to Florida, I would see Pat. He was really, really nice guy and always asking for any opportunity to come in. And the opportunity came up, bring him in as a tag team, make him the Orient Express. And they were, uh, they were a great team. So they eventually dropped the tag titles, uh, May 25th of 87 in Lake Tahoe to Boris Zukov and a tag team partner. And they did okay in their first year in the AWA. Sean said they made 39 grand, but the WWF is clearly kicking the AWA's ass and everybody wants to go there. Even Kurt comes in the locker room and announces or starts singing, start spreading the news to let everybody know that he's headed to New York. So the guys start to plan, Hey, how can we get there? And Marty still has a relationship with Terry Garvin and Terry Garvin at this point is working for Vince. So Marty calls him. Is it true that back in those days, Marty sort of handled the, the business for the tag team? Is that because he had been in the business a little longer because he was a little older? Was he a better person to negotiate with? Was he more likable or personable? Did Sean rub people the wrong way? Why did Marty handle the Rockers business? Probably because he had been in the business longer. And I, I don't know really per se why they made that decision, but I would assume it's because Marty had been in the business longer and had more relationships than Sean did. And in this case in particular, it was he had an end with Terry Garvin in the WWF. So make that call. If you know somebody, it's usually easier. Uh, Marty says that he told Terry that the AWA wanted to sign him for two years, but Terry advised him not to do it. And uh, he says a few weeks later he got a call with a starting date for Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation. Sean was super ecstatic with this because he's always wanted to be in New York and work in the big territory, and this is the big stage. So out of the blue, he gets the news, and Sean is over the moon and can't wait to tell the rest of the locker room, just as Kurt did before him, start spreading the news. He did not want to leave humbly. Surprise, surprise. Years later, uh, Sean would find out that Pat Patterson had recommended the guys after seeing him on ESPN. But... Word was starting to leak out, and Vince got word that maybe these guys were more trouble than they were worth. And Vince is told by Pat Patterson, they're just rebelling against Vern. If you bring them in and sit them down, they'll do business. Imagining that Vince is going to be handled a little differently than Vern would. Is it true that Pat sort of went, on a, went out on a limb to help get Sean and Marty a shot, even though they had this party or river reputation? 100%. And Pat didn't know him from Adam. But he, he did go to bat for him and just thought that because of their talent that they had been in a position in the AWA, it was a different environment than what was in the WWF at the time and just felt that no one had ever really sat him down and said, hey, guys, we're not going to put up with that here. So that was Pat's feeling, 100%. Sean would write, before I get to our very brief yet tumultuous stay in the WWE, I'd like to clear up a few things about Marty's and my reputation. 
We were known as young punks, and we deserve that moniker. The unfair thing is that we were no different than any other young wrestler. We were never the first ones to do anything for the first time in the wrestling business. That I'm positive of. But we were like the guy in class who always gets blamed for whatever happened. We're extremely talented, but our brashness made us look as if we didn't have a shred of humility. In this business, that's a one-way ticket to big heat. Everyone thought we acted the way we did, tearing up hotel rooms, ribbing, partying all the time, because we were really good. That wasn't the case. Yes, we were cocky. Yes, we tore up a hotel room every now and again, and we pulled a lot of ribs and partied excessively. But we weren't mean. Do you think that's a fair assessment? These guys are just having a good time, but they're, I mean, they're not, you know, putting kerosene in a guy's inhaler or kicking his crutch out from undering and pissing on him, right? Well, no, I do think that's a pretty fair assessment. They, they were young. They were wild. They liked to have a good time and get loud and, uh, you know, wanted to do rock and roll. Let's tear up the hotel room and do crazy stuff sometimes. They get a little out of control. So they start on June 2nd of 87 in Buffalo, New York. Were you at that show? Yes, I was. Do you, what do you remember being the sort of feeling about them coming in? Were you in the office and the discussions beforehand or you show up and see them and recognize them? No, this is, this is, uh, when I just started there. So they had come in and there were, there was a lot of uh, apprehension. There were a lot of, you know, whispers of, Oh boy, these guys, you know, watch your, watch your bag. They like to play ha ha and their reputation preceded them and they had a reputation for being merciless rivers. So that was there beforehand. I knew Sean from Texas before that. So it was kind of nice to see Sean didn't know Marty, but when they came in, it was definitely nice to see him. And I thought that they could, uh, they could really do well there. They made it one night. I guess we should mention that, um, this happens in June and I, I think it's like a month prior is when Duggan and Sheik got in trouble. So maybe Vince is a little more sensitive to partying and all this than he might normally be. Is that fair to say? Yeah, he was definitely on the edge and definitely looking at guys and looking at drug tests and different things like that, but he didn't want uh, any more unnecessary eyeballs on us, any unnecessary scrutiny, put it that way. So the very day the Rockers start is the day Vince starts the drug testing campaign for the wrestlers for the very first time, and a lot of guys are upset about this. And Vince is holding a meeting with all the boys and telling them that the company is now global and they have an image to maintain and drugs will not be tolerated. He goes on to say that he loves Jim Duggan, but now Duggan is through. And if you're caught doing drugs, you're fired too. Um, Marty has said this was their first day, and it's also what he hears is the first time Vince has ever held a meeting like this with all the talent. Do you remember the meeting or hearing that this is the first time such a meeting like this has ever happened? I was at the meeting and I'd heard that it was my first meeting of that kind. That's for damn sure. And I don't, there were grumblings, but more of it was out of ignorance and not knowing like, Oh my God, uh, everybody is trying to find out. Okay. If I took this, how long until this will get out of my system? <laughs> you know, if I go and I drink, a gallon of water right now. Will I be able to piss this out of my system before I go do the piss test? Okay, if I might have sniffed white powder four days ago, is it possible that it could still be in my system? Is pot on this? There were That was the grumbling that was going on for the most part. 
allegedly, Chief J. Strongbow, who who was working as an agent for the company, walks up to Sean and says, I heard about you guys, and I don't think you should be here. Do you remember hearing that? I could see Chief doing that, definitely, and Chief trying to make people uncomfortable and try to let them know, uh, I'm in charge here, and I'm not going to put up with any of your bullshit, that kind of stuff. So you don't think it's necessarily unique to them? That was just his way of intimidating guys? That was his way of intimidating guys. They weren't the only ones that Chief would do that to. You know, you've sort of uh, went both ways on this. What's your feelings on Chief? Uh, People have said... Good and bad things, various things about him over the years. Where do you fall on Chief? Well, uh, Chief and I didn't necessarily get along. I don't, I don't like or dislike the Chief. And through the years, we had differences of opinion on a lot of different things. But Chief looked at me as a young guy that was coming into the business and screwing up Vince's head with all these crazy ideas. Uh, Vince also. I beg your pardon. Chief also, I don't think, was used to having people tell him no or to challenge any of his ideas and things like that. So coincidentally, especially when I came back the the second time with Pat and I, where we had a lot more say in the live events on a nightly basis, that he felt that uh, he was being pushed out and that his way was better and we were ruining the business. Uh, Pat and I for trying to do more entertaining things on the house shows. But Chief was just an old guy, and if you got to know him, he could be a lot of fun. Um, we just were two different people that uh, you weren't going to see us hanging out at a bar or having dinner together. Well, they didn't end up using Sean and Marty that night, and they watched the show by themselves, and it's a television taping for Superstars and Challenge. And that night, a lot of the wrestlers are staying at the Ramada Renaissance, and the Rockers decide to stay at another hotel. They figured if they could stay away from everybody, they could stay out of trouble. But Terry Garvin's not having it. He wants them at the hotel, and he says that it's uh, good for them to hang out with all the guys here. Sean says, we didn't want to go. We told Terry that we didn't want to make any problems, but he was adamant. If you don't make the first move, they'll think you're prima donnas. And I know a lot of people are going to think weird about that, but really in wrestling, when we've talked about you got to go shake everybody's hand and all that, it's probably a good idea to try to be nice to the guys on your first night in, right? It is. It is important, and I think that there's a perception, not always fair. I hate the comment, perception's reality, because reality is reality. And people's perception is not always based in fact. It's based on rumor and innuendo and everything else. But there was, if the guys were against you and they felt you were an outsider and that you thought you were better than them, man, it could be brutal. They can make it really tough for you uh, on a daily basis. And Terry, and I've said this to guys, hey, you don't just stop by the bar, say hello, have a drink. Uh, be seen a, yeah, you know, emphasis on have a drink. And, uh, if you don't want to start any trouble or anything, say your hellos and then disappear quietly. But then everybody can say, Hey, you know, I saw them. They weren't that bad. They didn't get out of control. They didn't do anything stupid and move on. So I think Terry was giving them good advice to just come by and say, hello, make an appearance and move on. Terry mentions that, hey, you didn't say hello to everybody. You need to uh, 
go say hello to everybody. And Sean was a little gunshot about doing that, giving what the chief had said. So they don't do it. And eventually they walk into the bar and he says, what a scene it was. The nightclub was very dark and a cavernous place. There was the Samoan group with Alpha Sika and Tonga in one corner, Paul Roma, Jim Powers, Debbie Boy Smith, the British Bulldogger in another, and their superstars on the road all the time. And everyone sort of strung out from being on the road. It wasn't quite like walking into the bar from Star Wars, but describing it as an ominous sight would not be an exaggeration. We took a deep breath and then walked in, and once again, all eyes were on us. At the time, we didn't know any of them, so we just thought they hated us all. Greg Valentine, I'd later find out, was just a quiet guy, and that's why he sat and stared. But we didn't know that, so when he looked at us and didn't say anything, we figured he didn't like us. Years later, I asked Dino Bravo what he was staring at us, and he told me he was just trying to figure out why we had so much heat. So it's sort of funny where we're about to get into a weird situation that's going to cost some guys some jobs, but really, it's a big misunderstanding. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I, I definitely would. But that was, you know, that was the way. That was just the atmosphere, and that was the uh, culture, the modern day term of how you would describe it. Of the business and the dressing room at the time, you know, the same thing can be said. I remember when Jim Ross first came in and, you know, I know Jim Ross. I know the human being, Jim Ross, the professional Jim Ross can be a different guy. And a lot of the WWF guys that had never been around Jim before looked at him as a WCW guy coming into the WWF we don't want him here, and I don't want his style and him to come in here with his college bullshit and everything else coming in. They didn't want to give Jim a chance. Right. And and that is another case of Vince and I suggesting to Jim, Jim, come down to the bar, have a drink, say hello to everybody, you know, and uh, move on. But uh, it wasn't the... the the perception of Jim without knowing him wasn't fair. I don't know that necessarily the perception of the Rockers was fair either, but that's the way it was. And guys looking at it, I mean, the you use the analogy of the Star Wars bar. That is a perfect analogy of the way that it used to be. I remember being terrified walking into the bar after a TV when I first got there because there were so many different just factions and clicks all over the bar, and you kind of had to make your way around, say hello to everybody so that you weren't being a stuck-up asshole. Oh, you didn't. Saw you in the bar last night. You're too good to come over and say hello. Just kind of make your way around, and then I got to go to the bathroom and never come back. (sighs) Sean says, we made our way to an open section and stood there all by ourselves. We didn't go anywhere. We didn't say anything. Terry kept coming over and telling us to mingle, but we were afraid. Finally, we decided to go introduce ourselves to Jim Powers and Davy Boy Smith. They were a couple steps down from us, and we sensed a more jovial atmosphere there. No one else looked like they were having any fun at all. So we started small talking with them, and everything was going fine until Jimmy Jack Funk decided to come over. He was ripped and wanted to start some trouble. So allegedly... The way this goes down is Jimmy Jack Funk is uh, slurring his words. He's hammered and saying something like, hey, I hear you guys are big partiers. Let's see something. And eventually he picks up a glass off the table and starts chewing it and says, come on, you guys are big time. Let's see it. So he picks up another glass and bites into it. And 
Sean says something like, we have a ton of heat. We're just trying to fit in, but he persists. So Sean picks up a glass, smashes it over his head. And then he turns around and tells Terry, we're out of here. They jump in a cab and head to their hotel. Now, after he left, he didn't know, but Marty hooked up with a girl that night that Funk had been trying to hit on. And that's where a lot of this heat came from. Do you remember this situation and what the talk at the arena was the next night? Were you at this bar? Did you see any of this? I was not at the bar. I did not see it. And I heard about it the next day because everybody was talking about it, how, you know, the rockers were in, the rockers got all screwed up and, uh, they were throwing beer bottles and throwing glasses and almost got into a fight with, uh, Jesse Barr and all this other crap. So all we're hearing is that, you know, that side of it, that what's the new element here? It's the rockers. The rockers came over to the bar and then, uh, beer bottles started getting thrown and broken all over the place. And there was a big ruckus in the bar. That was all Vince had to hear. Next. So the next day they're in the lunch line at catering and Jack comes up and asks Marty what his problem was. And Marty was hung over and thought Jack was kidding around. And then Jack started yelling and turned to the other wrestlers who were sitting and eating. And he tells the boys that the night before the rockers had said, we're going to be big stars and you're just a jobber. And Marty denies saying that. And then Jack says, well, you told the limo driver you were going to whip me. We'll see you tonight in the ring. And Sean said 10 years later, Davy Boy Smith was heard telling the exact same story that you just told, that on their first night in, Marty and Sean sort of tore the bar up. And obviously this is a bit of a discrepancy because Sean and Marty have denied this all along. What say you? Do you think they really tore the bar up, or is this just sour grapes from Jimmy Jack Funk who wanted some punani? I think that it's probably a combination of all of the above. I think that the guys went in there and on the insistence of Terry Garvin to kind of make an appearance and mingle. And they got in and boys being the boys. Oh, hey, you too good to come party with us? I guess y'all are big stars. I guess I'm just a job boy. Here, watch this. I'll eat some glass. And then Sean, oh yeah, that's all you can do. Watch this. Break glass over my head, maybe throw a few beer bottles and, um, by the time that it gets back to anybody else the next day, the rocker, the rockers walked in, said, we're the biggest stars here. You're all a bunch of jabronis. Fuck you. Watch me eat some glass and tear this bar up. So there's probably a little bit of truth in, in all of it. But, uh, and again, I said that one month after the Jim Duggan iron sheet thing, you know, if this right. was, if this was three months prior or maybe a, a year later, maybe it wouldn't be as sensitive, but here, it's certainly something that is going to have Vince on heightened alert. Exactly. And in his backyard, too, being in New York. It's worth mentioning, too, that uh, that night when all of this is going down and catering the day of the show, the Rockers are working against Jose Estrada and Jimmy Jack Funk. You want to guess who the agent for the match was? Chunga! Chief J. Strongbow. Yeah. How great is that? So uh, Sean says that they're both pretty nervous and not really sure what to do. If funk starts shooting, are they supposed to fight or what's, what are they supposed to do? So they decide it's best to just go talk to chief and they go up and say, we know you don't like us. We understand that we'll work as long as we have to, to get your respect. 
But we didn't do anything last night, and Frank is stirring up trouble. We're just trying to do our job, and we have to work with him tonight. So Chief says he'll take care of it. Everybody will do business. Don't worry about it. And then they go out and they have a match. And as they come through, Gorilla Monsoon says, good match. Jimmy Jack Funk shook their hands and said, you guys are talented. Jose said, thank you too. So all of a sudden, it feels like all sort of forgiven. They shower, they dress, they leave the building, and that's when they see Vince. They go over and say hello, and Vince was friendly. But then in a very firm manner, he says, hey, let's watch the old having fun. And it was at least an acknowledgement of what had been said. And they, they said, yes, sir, it'll never happen again. But, of course, the next day, Marty gets the call from Terry Garvin, and it's something like, I'm sorry, Marty, Vince is going to let you guys go. You need to have some time off to mature. He's heard what's happened. You guys were breaking a bunch of glasses in the place and tearing up the bar and causing fights. And Marty says, none of that happened. And Terry said, well, your best bet is to fly up here and come talk to him. You'll have to pay your own way, but I'll get you in front of him and you can come talk to him. So that's sort of a more detail than I'd ever heard before that they saw Vince the night after, but then the very next morning get the call by that point, had the legend just grown and who was sort of working against the rockers. If you had to guess, I would say probably that's exactly what happened that by that time, more people had come to Vince and, you know, quote eyewitnesses. Oh yeah, I saw it, Vince, and uh, and they had a girl, and she was bent over the bar, and Marty was fucking her in the ass. Sean stuck his dick in her mouth, and and they were breaking beer bottles over her back. The legend just grew. The the more people, you know, oh yeah, well I saw, and like I said, that's why I just don't believe a whole lot of it. I think it was a lot of urban legend that grew into much more than it actually was. And it just gets bigger, you know, this it, reputation. Yeah. Like, well, you, five years you just ago. talked about. Yeah. Ten years later, Bulldog still telling, you know, the other story. Right. Because it had been told so many times, that's what, what he saw it as. And, you know, uh, the only ones that are really ever going to know the truth are those that were there. But I could see from Vince till the next morning, sleeping on it, more and more people coming up to him and going, boy, I don't know about those damn rocker guys. You know what, Vince? I heard that they uh, went back to their hotel and they just trashed that one too. It just, I think it just got bigger and bigger, and Vince finally said, you know what, with all the crap on us, I don't need that around me. So the guys fly up on their own to meet with Vince, and they're sitting on a couch outside of his office when Vince walks in and notices Sean's boots and says something like, nice boots. Sean says, thank you. And Vince says, they're made for walking, you know. And then there's like the awkward silence. And then he lets out the big chuckle and says, just kidding. Come on in. <laughs> By the way, pal, you're fired. Get out. <laughs> uh, they sit down and Vince says, sorry, but we've got to have, we're going to have to let you go. He still wanted to hear their side of the story, which they told him. And he says, I believe you, but the thing is, these guys here don't want you here, and they're not going to allow you here. They'll drive you out. You have to understand we have a family here, and if they don't want you here, it's not going to happen. But Vince says, you're young, you're talented, you've got a future. Maybe we'll try it again. The door is always open. 
Sean says, all my dreams vanished instantly. Now I would never get the chance to prove that I could be a great wrestler at the highest level. My career was over and my life was over. I was only 22 years old. Do you remember having a heads up that they were getting fired? And how did you find out? I know you're the office at that time, but did you find out after they're fired or beforehand? After. After they were fired, you just let us know that we're not going to be doing business with the Rockers going forward. Uh, forget it. Just forget about them. So Vince that was ma- it. Vince makes it real clear here, though, that these guys don't want you here. Can, I mean, besides Jimmy Jack Funk and Chief J. Strongbow, can you pinpoint anybody else who was sort of anti-Rockers? You know, I just think that it was more the perception and the, that rumor and innuendo that just spread like wildfire about, you know, these guys are trouble. Right. And everybody whispering about it before they ever even stepped foot in the door. Before they even had their first match, people were talking about, oh, boy, you know, watch, watch your bag. Watch this. They're trouble. So it was just that accumulation, accumulation of all of that that probably just got to them and, and when more than one or two or three people go to Vince and say, hey, there's this problem, it becomes a problem. So at this point, they felt like they'd burned the bridge with the AWA, and they couldn't go back there. But at the same time, they couldn't really go to Atlanta because the Rock and Roll Express was there. Marty had heard good things about continental wrestling, and he also heard that you didn't have to make more than a three-hour trip. So he starts negotiating and gets the guys $700 a week. And they get to live on the beach. But eventually, of course, they're no longer operating in Pensacola because Fuller has moved it to Birmingham. And when the move happens, there goes the guaranteed money as well. So Marty says on their first night in, Tom and Scott Armstrong, Tom Pritchard, come up to them and said something like, you guys are crazy. We heard about what happened up there. And the word had already spread from New York down to Birmingham. How do you think something like that happens? Is this the old famous telephone telewrestler? I called Tom and I said, Hey, did you hear about them rockers? They fucked up the bar. Right no. Um, yeah. Telephone, telegraph, telewrestler. It got to the point that Tracy Smothers approached them on their first night here at Continental and says, man, is it true? Y'all went in that bar with a shotgun and shot the place up. <laughs> Damn. You'll get over real good down here. Of course, Sean is miserable being here in Alabama. Insert your own joke there. Um, I was going to say, uh, who wouldn't be? Listen to you. Do you remember hearing anything about uh, Sean's unhappiness here? Because this is one of the first times we hear Sean admit to being a real pain in the ass to deal with. They're doing an autograph session at a television taping. And the girl asks that she write, that he writes something on the back of her jacket. So he says, turn around. And instead of writing his name, he writes in big letters, I am a dyke on the girl's jacket. Roll tide. So you can guess what happens next. The girl's upset. She goes to Robert Fuller. Fuller comes over and uh, Sean just loses it about how he's giving up his body and making him all of this money, and now he can't even take a joke. The next day at a spot show, Bob Armstrong comes over and says, hey, we're giving you your two weeks' notice. Sean says, we don't need it. We quit now. And even though this was Sean pitching a fit, not Marty, and Marty normally handles the business, 
Marty sticks with him, and he walks out too. Does word of this firing from Continental make its way back up to New York too, you think? Well, I I actually knew about it because of Tom, yes. I mean, so it feels like Vince made the right call, right? The next spot, they're fired almost right away. Sure, yeah, he's justified in realizing that, hey, glad that happened down there, and they just need more time to mature. And Vince also recognized that they were young. <laughs> you know, they're, they're young guys in this business, and they really just needed time, and they needed to mature and get their shit together. So Sean calls Jerry Jarrett, who was running Tennessee, and gets the guys a $500 a week guarantee. So once they're there, they move in with the Nasty Boys, which is pretty incredible to think about the Rockers and the Nasty Boys living together in a one-bedroom apartment. Ever hear any good stories about that shit? Oh, God. You know, they became lifelong friends after uh, their time in Memphis because that will bond you unlike anything, I think, that anything else possibly can for the life. But, no, they, they both had reputations for doing a lot of ribs and together concocted quite a few in the Memphis territory, which was ripe for ribs. Well, they decide to do what they do and, uh, they try to get into Graceland after hours and they're just climbing over the gate to do so before they're recognized. And, uh, this is just, I guess, boys will be boys. I guess we should mention here that this is the first time the Rockers are working as heels here as well. And it makes sense. They're young, good-looking, cocky, arrogant dudes. So this is their first opportunity to portray as heels. Do you think that, I mean, I always felt like Sean was a better heel than a baby face. What's your take on that? Do you think that Sean was a better heel or baby? Oh, I think Sean's definitely a much better heel. But the for Memphis, that's where the Rock and Roll Express, man, that's where they were born. So anybody coming in and trying to do anything close to the Rock and Roll Express is going to be looked at as copycats and heels. It's just a natural progression for them to to work as heels in Memphis. Well, eventually, uh, word starts spreading that these guys are doing great as heels. So Vern calls and asks if he can use them for some shows. So they're going back and forth now for the AWA and Jerry Jarrett. Eventually, at the end of 87, the Midnight Rockers beat Dennis Condry and Randy Rose to win their second AWA World Tag Team titles, and then they drop them in March of 88 in Vegas. And during this time, they found out that Vern had given Kurt a guarantee, so they feel like they deserve one also. So they go and ask Vern for a guarantee and say, hey, we're the most over guys, and we deserve that. And he says, no, you're young punks. We'll never draw a dime. And they decided to quit. So it feels like this sort of storm just sort of follows them everywhere they go. They've had an issue that they didn't maybe leave the right way the first time for the AWA. Then they had an issue in the WWF. Then they really, really, really wear out their welcome quickly in Continental. And now it's happening again here in the AWA. Sean says that he and Marty didn't know this, but the entire time that he had been gone, Pat Patterson was really working on Vince to bring him back. And Pat told Vince that now that they're heels, they're doing a great job, and things will be different if he gave them a second chance. Eventually it works, though, because Vince calls and says, I'm bringing you back. I'm getting a ton of heat for it, and if you do absolutely anything wrong, you'll be gone forever. So the guys sort of refer to this as double-secret probation. When does the word get out that they're considering hiring the Rockers again? And do you remember Pat sort of being the champion here for a second time about bringing them back, this time for a second chance? Well, frankly, Pat was the champion of them uh, 
when they got fired and thought that the boys are going to be the boys. And if you just give it time, everything will work itself out. And Vince just wasn't having it because there was just too much of it. Gaga at the time, as you like to say. But Pat really, he liked their work and felt that they could do something and wanted to bring them back. And it was, it was pretty much a constant. Whenever there are guys out there that Vince says no to, <laughs> we just have a time frame. We go, okay, how long has it been since we brought up so and so? Let's, let's try again, man. <laughs> you know, so when Vince would bring up, what do we do with this? I know. How about the rockers? I'm sure they've matured by now. They're working heel and. Slowly but surely, you start to wear the old man down. Was anybody really, really against it? I mean, when Vince says, I'm getting a lot of heat for it, is that just bullshit to try to make sure the guys are behaving? Or do you remember there being some really adamant people in the office or on the road who were against them coming back? Well, no one really knew um, that they were even thinking about bringing him back until he had made the decision to bring him back other than Vince and Pat. So... At that point, you know, by the time they're coming back, then people started with, oh, boy, all the trouble that they were last time. You sure you want to do this? But uh, And by that time, Vincent made up his mind that he was going to give them another chance. They make their official return in Fresno on May 31st in 1988, and they're wrestling Terry Gibbs and the Conquistadors. Later that day, they would work Terry Gibbs and Steve Lombardi, and then the next day they're in Oakland working with Barry Horowitz and Mark Ming. So two days in, the Rockers have already lasted a lot longer than they did the first time around. You were there the day they first came in. Were you there when they returned here in 88? Yeah, I was. And everybody was, you know, it was kind of a breath of fresh air. The fact they came back and they, you know, they had good matches and they did what they should have been able to do the first time. They came in humble and went around and, did the obligatory, how's everybody doing, introducing themselves and making sure everybody knew that they screwed up the first time that they were in. And, and they let everybody, including the boys, know, hey, you know, we're here. We, uh, we're sorry for screwing up the first time, and let's move on. The word is Dynamite Kid approaches the guys and says, you guys have a lot of heat, but you've got to go in, and I don't give a damn what you've done or who you are. But if the boys don't like you, it's because you have a ton of heat because you won't talk to anybody. Come in, shake hands, say hello to everyone. They think you're cocky prima donnas. If you don't at least show the initiative and come shake their hands, then they're not going to feel like you belong. So you can't come in and not talk to people. Marty and Sean say they didn't know or they would have done that a year ago. It's sort of a a bygone era, it feels like, because I don't know that people would be chased out of a locker room. Is there a story about Booker T getting upset a couple of years ago about guys not shaking hands or something like that? I heard that there was there was something with the Young Bucks where Booker got upset. I think the funniest that I ever saw Booker get upset about was Booker used to have three Red Bulls, and he would hide the Red Bulls in the ice chest in the locker room, but in a certain ice chest. And we didn't provide Red Bull for the guys. Booker went out and would always have somebody go get him three Red Bulls. He had his little routine. And Booker goes in to get his Red Bull, and they were gone. And he starts screaming. <laughs> he throws the uh, ice chest, ice and drinks go everywhere, and cut a promo because as he walked out, there were a couple of locals that were sitting there drinking his Red Bull. 
And he flipped out that someone came into his locker room, which was the TV locker room at the time, and goes into a an ice chest where right next to his stuff and takes his Red Bulls and starts drinking. So, yeah, there are different things. You know, uh, the, the rap on the Young Bucks was that they didn't come in and introduce themselves to either RVD or somebody. I don't know. I wasn't there. But, again, a lot of that becomes perception. Young guys come in, they get intimidated by a lot of these guys that you see hanging around, and they don't want to approach them and disturb them. They think they may be busy. I don't want to upset somebody and interrupt while they're having a conversation. But then the other, it can be looked at the other way. Who the hell do these guys think they are? They can't come over and say hello to me. Right. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword, and it's a it's a fine line to walk and sometimes you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't marty says when they come back they keep to themselves because they're really nervous about getting this heat and andre saw them keeping to themselves and he immediately hated them because of it do you remember that being the case that andre had an issue with the rockers because they kind of positioned themselves as loners didn't like them didn't like them for that reason because they didn't, they didn't come in and they weren't a part of the dressing room and they weren't, you know, kind of BS and playing cards and just, um, overall kind of a part of the family in, in the locker room. So Andre looked at them and Andre was guilty of judging them on the past perception. You, you break bottles in bar. Andre drink bottles. You bad. So. That was Andre's perception, and I don't think that anything could have changed it other than time. Well, eventually time is what it takes. Sean tries every single day to shake Andre's hand because he says everybody in the locker room sort of lined up and said, how you doing, boss, and shook his hand. And it was sort of like a mafia dawn greeting is the way Sean describes it. Well, Sean tries to shake his hand every single day. And is never acknowledged, like doesn't acknowledge his existence at all. He doesn't look up at all. No response to the hand gesture, anything. Eventually, Marty gives up and just says, hey, I'll just eat the heat with him. But Sean persists and stays after him. And then eventually, they're on a European tour, and they're teaming with Andre in a six-man against the Orient Express and Mr. Fuji. Back in those days, everybody said, thank you, boss, to Andre after a match. And when they did it this time to... Andre, Andre stuck his hand out. And later that night at the hotel bar, Andre waves Sean over and says, have a beer. Uh, and then he sort of whispered, yes, sir, I know you don't like us. And Andre said, when you first came in, I didn't like you, but after that, you're okay. And Sean said, but you never shook our hands. And Andre says, but after that, I was just ribbing you then for a year. <laughs> giant funny. Giant ribs are giant ribs. Long time. We've told us before that he didn't like Big John Stud, and he just didn't like the big guys. But do you think that this is real here, that he had a, a perception, but he just at that point, hey, I'm fucking with him, and I'm having fun fucking with him, I'm just going to let it be? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Andre, Andre hated, uh, Andre fired the Freebirds, hated the Freebirds. Just could not get out. You're fired. I don't like you. Unbelievable. 
that a guy had that level of stroke here. The, the Rockers are hitting the house show loop pretty hard. Uh, they worked the Conquistadors through July of 88, and then they get their first big-time match against the Rougeau brothers at Madison Square Garden. That's on July 25th. That's been the better part of the summer, actually, working with the Conquistadors. Why did it make sense to pair the Rockers with the Conquistadors when they first come in? Get them over. Go go around the horn and, and get over and get a good win and let people see you. Uh, a masked foreign team against two good-looking baby faces, and it was a way to give them a happy baby face win and go around the horn and get them over. Pretty fun for me to note in my research that on August 28th, the Rockers got their first-ever tag team title shot when they took on the Brain Busters, Tully Blanchard and Aaron Anderson in Greensboro. Pretty unbelievable to me that you're bringing babyface rockers in to Greensboro to challenge two of the four horsemen. Of course, the Busters win the match. And I know we're probably not going to do a Brain Busters episode because they didn't spend a long time in the company, but maybe we will. Hypothetically, is there a better example of a great tag team? I mean, I think Tully and Arn, amongst a lot of Southern wrestling fans like myself, are in the upper echelon of tag teams. But then for whatever reason, when they get to the WWF, it just doesn't work for Vince, right? Well, it didn't work. I don't think that the audience really accepted them. I thought they were a great tag team in the WWF. I thought they were tremendous together. And just for whatever reason, they didn't have the size. They didn't have the look and didn't do a whole lot. But as far as matches, and here, here's the thing about the Rockers, and I'll probably state this over and over again throughout this. What continually got them over time and time again, that no matter where they were on the card, no matter who they were working with, man, they were having the best matches of the night, every night. They would go out and bust their ass to steal the show, no matter where they were on the card or who they were with. So that work ethic was there from the first day they came back, every single night. They start working with Demolition, and this is one of the times that Sean would write in his book that he felt like there was a disconnect because he felt like if you had strong work, it meant that the people were yelling loud. But the Demolition's definition of strong work was how few times you went down and took a bump. And the Rockers are a little concerned with getting themselves over, but they really wanted to have a good match. And he felt like there was a little bit of a disconnect here. It felt like they were still good matches, but they weren't as good as they could have been because they'd hit them with the double drop kicks and they'd stagger instead of taking a bump. And they'd have to hit it two or three times before they finally go down. Everybody else went down with one drop kick. Do you think that is a word from the office or is that just demolition sort of doing what they perceive is best for their gimmick? It was probably a combination of both. It was probably a combination of the agent saying, you know, what are you doing bumping for these little small guys? Now, at the same time, during this time, I, I was pitching the Rockers and Demolition in a program because of the success of the Rock and Roll Express. And this is a complete ripoff of a Mid-South Angle with the Rock and Roll Express against Nikolai Volkov and Barry Darso in you had these two big guys and the two big guys being demolition, but yet the tag team experts of 
the Rockers was able to knock Demolition off, and together they couldn't be beat. And, and you would have, even went as far as to say you have singles matches, and Demolition beats the living shit out of them in single matches. They isolate them and beat the shit out of them one-on-one when the other isn't around. But together, the, ro- the Rockers have Demolition's number. And the idea was to put the, the titles on the Rockers and go around the horn and try to make them the WWF or more importantly, because I didn't think that the Rock and Roll Express as the NWA were nearly as good as they were in Mid-South. Right. So the idea was to make the Rockers that Mid-South version of the Rock and Roll Express in the WWF. Well, this is obviously the size era, and Marty and Sean have said, I think Sean or Marty more specifically, has said that a lot of the other tag teams didn't want to sell for them because they felt like they were too small. It was a size issue. And they felt like it was definitely a size issue with Demolition not wanting to sell, and even the Hart Foundation, although eventually the Hart Foundation came around. Do you remember that being a big topic of conversation, that it was relative to size is the reason some of these guys had trouble selling for them? Yeah, definitely. I'm a big guy. How am I going to sell for that little guy? The And then, you know, Vince's argument to that was, go back to the, the old Curtis Hughes story of not wanting to sell for Randy Savage. And he said, who's going to believe that? He said, they'll believe it when they see it. And I felt the same way here because the Rockers, hey, man, it until you do it, how do you know? You know what's funny, though, is when you say that about a guy like Curtis Hughes and, and defending Macho Man from Vince McMahon's own mouth, later, when you guys are going to pitch him on Rey Mysterio being the champ, ah, isn't that crazy? That, that, little, that little tiny guy with the mask, who's going to believe that? Does anybody in a meeting like that say back they'll believe it when they see it? Oh, I used to all the time. Nothing will piss Vince off more <laughs> than using his own logic sure. against him. Sure. They make their pay-per-view debut on November 24th, 1988 at the Survivor Series, and they're in the 10-man elimination tag team match. It's the Bulldogs, Heart Foundation, Powers of Pain, and Young Stallions taking on Demolition, Brain Busters, Bolsheviks, Conquistadors, and the Rougeau Brothers. Uh, the Rockers and the Brainbusters are eliminated when both teams were DQ'd. Uh, in hindsight, how would you describe these 10 team elimination matches at Survivor Series? If you had to do it in a word, a main event anywhere in the world, by God. More than one word. Um, they do a tag team battle royal, which was kind of fun in early December. Why didn't we see very many tag team battle royals? It feels like a concept that Vince would have been all about. Cause they suck. And they're hard to keep track of. You know, the idea was you throw one guy out, the other guy's automatically eliminated. Right. That's just hard to control. That's hard to really pay attention to as a fan. Oh, wait a minute. That guy's out. And then the other guy just has to get out of the ring. I just think they sucked. Sean worked a lot with the Brain Busters here in the month of December, and he wrote about it a lot in his book. He says, both were great wrestlers, and I was a huge Blanchard fan, so it was neat to be able to wrestle one of my boyhood heroes. The thing with them was, though, they were great teachers. They were firm believers in the match and were able to help Marty and me out. They were able to work with us and were adamant that we could tear the house down together. There's an art to a tag match, and Tully and Arn taught me and Marty the nuances that can turn an ordinary match into a great one. They would take control of our matches from the start so that we would have to fight back from underneath. This allowed Marty and me to show some toughness and allow the crowd to really get behind us. 
After one of their early matches, Sean approached Tully and said, I'm learning so much from you guys. My psychology is getting better. And Tully said, Sean, let me tell you something about psychology. Psychology is about who can make them yell the the loudest, the longest. That's all it is. From the time you walk out to the time you leave, it's about making them yell the loudest for the longest. Is that the best way you can describe psychology and being over? Yell the loudest, the longest? I, I really think it's more about telling a story and getting someone invested in the story in the match. And, and it's the roller coaster ride. It's the ups and the downs. And as long as they're reacting the way that you want them to react and you're not reacting to them, they're reacting to you. And to me, that's beautiful psychology. If you can have people that you can control in the palm of your hand, that's beautiful psychology. And that's something that is an art form. And through the years, I think that, you know, Sean, more than anybody, learned how to perfect that. January of 89, of course, is the Royal Rumble in Houston, uh, and the Rockers are both in the Rumble match. Sean comes in at 8, Marty's at 14. Uh, they both eliminate Ron Bass, and then Sean's thrown out by Arn and Randy Savage. Marty is thrown out by Tully Blanchard. Uh, about a week later, they're at Madison Square Garden, and they're working with the Brain Busters. Tully pins Marty after Arn had knocked Marty's leg out as he was attempting to suplex Tully, and they tore the house down. So when they come back through the curtain, Hogan looks at him and says, how the hell am I supposed to follow that? He wasn't mad, though. It was a complimentary tone, and they were flattered. Getting a a kudos to Hulk Hogan, was that common here in 89, or was that unusual for him to do? No, that was common. Hulk would sit there and watch every match, and, you know, it boils down to Hulk Hogan's a big wrestling fan, and he he loved to watch all the matches top to bottom. Uh, so for him to make that compliment, no, nah, that was that was fairly common. They continue to work with the Brainbusters even through Saturday night's main event in February in Hershey. They do a double count out there, and Sean said that working with Arn and Tully helped him feel like he had earned his tag team degree. He felt like that Arn and Tully showed them how to have the tag team match. Uh, WrestleMania five, of course, is right around the corner, April of 89, Trump Towers. And there's a famous clip from this match that gets spread around a handful of times a year. It's the Twin Towers taking on the Rockers. And I bet when I just reference the spot in this match that everybody plays clips of online, you know exactly which one I'm talking about, don't you? The, the Hurricane Rana gimmick. No, the clothesline from hell. Oh, and the clothesline, but also the, and also at the time too, the Hurricane Rana. Yes. Clothesline was hell from hell was absolutely tremendous. What do you think about, um, the decision to pair two little guys with two big guys? This is classic storytelling, is it not? Uh, it was again, it was <laughs> a broken record of going, God, Vince, please don't believe it when they see it. You want the little versus big, David and Goliath. And maybe it just was that there was just such a greater size disparity here that, you know, finally he saw it. But it was these guys' work every night was off the chart. So this is sort of fun. The guys have huge fights with their girls the night before and wind up stomping out of their hotel room and going down to the lobby to the bar. And as Sean gets off one elevator after a big fight with his wife, Teresa, Marty is getting off another elevator after a fight with his girlfriend. So the guys just stomp off to the bar and tie one on and drink till four in the morning. 
and then wake up four hours later when the alarm goes off on the very first day of their very first WrestleMania. They're hungover. They have no sleep. Uh, and they get to work. They take, uh, some fastens, which they say are pills that were supposed to get you going and drinking a bunch of coffee. When you guys get a report or do you get a report that the night before a big show like this, so-and-so closed the bar down? Well, on this particular WrestleMania, they probably were down there with us because we, we would finish up from doing promos. Vince and I probably at about four, maybe five o'clock in the morning, we would walk across from the convention center into the hotel. We would walk right into the bar and we would drink, go upstairs, take a shower and walk right back across the little parking lot out front there and go right back to doing promos. So it was, yeah, we probably crossed each other at that point, but that was, that was the way of life at the time, man. You partied, you had a good time and you just kept going. And as long as you could go the next day, by God, all's good. I do have a question about the decision to book the rockers with the twin towers here though. If on the way here, they're working pretty consistently with Arn and Tully and having great matches to the point that they're eliminating each other at the Rumble. They're working in February at Saturday night's main event, beginning a double count out. Why wouldn't you book the Brain Busters against the Rockers here at WrestleMania 5? Like that old house show analogy, because it's great in the house shows. You can continue it on in the house shows, and they've already seen it. It was a new match to do on pay-per-view. It had already been around the horn everywhere for the most part on house shows, so now I give them a new match for the pay-per-view. The big move that they were trying to debut here is the top rope double drop kick, and they pulled it off, although the timing wasn't perfect, maybe because of the hangover and the pills. They still did it, and the fans popped for it. Uh, and then after this, through most of the rest of the year, they're working with the fabulous Rougeaus. I'm talking April, May, June, July, August, September, October, on and on and on, including this note I found in my research. They did a 60-minute Ironman match on August 6th in Chicago, the Rockers and the Rougeaus, the Rockers get the victory. It seems sort of weird at the time for you guys to be running a 60-minute match. Is this just to fill space on the card because maybe some guys couldn't make their travel or something? No, it was, you look at Chicago, and Chicago being a traditional town, a traditional wrestling town that loved their wrestling. And every once in a while, Pat would like to experiment with things like that and be able to put them out there. Plus, you have four great workers in the Rockers and the Rougeaus. During this time, man, they had matches back and forth, and it was just a really great pairing with four guys that could go every single night and just perform, and it seemed like every night was better than the last. Sean wrote that the uh, general line on the Rougeaus was that they could do anything, but they were a little lazy, but he enjoyed the angle they did with them because – they were using Jimmy Hart's megaphone, and they do the angle where uh, they're taking exception to some of the remarks that the Rougeaus are doing. So as they start to brawl with them, they hit Sean in the throat with the megaphone, and he starts coughing up blood. And they go so far as to say that he lost his voice, and they carry it all the way through SummerSlam, which was August 28th in East Rutherford. Uh, and there we would see the Rockers team up with Tito Santana, and they lose to the Rougeaus and Rick Martel when Martel would pin Gennetti. Uh Overall, this is a pretty fun angle. Uh, Pat Patterson is the person who suggested the Rougeaus work with the Rockers 
And we know that Pat had a tight relationship with the Rougeaus, right? Yeah, Pat was, they were all Montreal, every one of them. You look at the Rougeaus, Rick Martel, everybody from Montreal. So yeah, they were, they were friends, longtime friends. Pat was friends with, uh, Jacques Rougeau Sr. And, um, without a doubt, he was big fans, but he was also during this whole time, man, probably the biggest proponent of the Rockers tag team was Pat Patterson. He, he saw shades of himself and Ray Stevens in, in their work and just loved the way that no matter where they were on, where they were on the card, they kicked ass. In Sean's first year in the company, he made $118,000. He was very happy with that number, of course. His best year prior to that had been 39000 so quite the raise. On October 31st, they would do a Saturday night's main event. The Rockers would beat the Brain Busters in a two-out-of-three falls match, and that is still probably one of my very favorite Saturday night main event matches from the era. Who decides, hey, let's showcase it and let's give them a finish? Because during that era, you didn't see a lot of clean finishes on Saturday night's main event. It really was to build the house show business, as you've told us in the past. I know what to do. We put the brain buster and the rocker in there and then we make it different. The two out of three fall match. That was, that was a tough selling point. I remember with Ebersol and NBC because they didn't think they could hold the audience's attention, especially that late at night. Right. And that was a tough sell, but finally gave in, you know, and Dick succumbed. Uh, let's get to Survivor Series 89. It's November 23rd from Rosemont Horizon. We've got the Rockers teaming with the Ultimate Warrior and Jim Neidhart to take on Andre the Giant, Arn Anderson, Haku, and Bobby Heenan. Before we talk about the match, did you ever see the promo, or did you shoot the promo where the Warrior starts taking tape and wrapping everybody up with it? Yeah, I've seen the promo. No, I didn't shoot it. That was probably Jack Lanza, that time frame. Um, yeah. Horrible. Warrior walks around with, with his, uh, athletic tape getting everybody. But then there's a point in the promo where the guys start choking because the tape is wrapped around their neck and they're trying to break it off, but it's come together. So now it's almost like trying to break a rope. And Warrior just is oblivious to this and is walking around. I would translate it, but I don't speak idiot. Listen to you. What? I'm just, just saying. Oh gosh. Uh, Marty is pinned by, uh, Bobby and then, uh, Sean pins Haku and then was eliminated by Arn. Of course, Warrior is the sole survivor at last eliminating Bobby and Bobby was a last minute replacement for Tully who was fired on the day of the event for failing a drug test. What do you remember about that last minute replacement and Tully's not so polite way to leave? Vince was pissed, and Vince didn't want him around. So the firing was immediate, and Tully was gone. You always have to, if you're going to do a replacement, you always got to do a replacement with something better than what was there before. And the addition, Bobby Heenan is the manager to have the manager in the match, who probably had the most heat of anybody, um, is the best replacement. So put Bobby in there, and Bobby had been around the horn doing matches with Warrior and the Weasel suit prior to this. So it was kind of a logical extension to do. But, yeah, Vince was pissed. Coming out of this match, they start working uh, a lot of matches with the Hart Foundation in a pretty rare babyface versus babyface series of matches. And they're doing lots of draws in the process. 
whose idea was it to start doing baby face versus baby face here? When you kind of run out of opponents at a time, it's a, just a little change to give the guys a change up on the house shows. And regardless, especially here, and you look at the, uh, Heart Foundation, in a lot of places, the Heart Foundation was still kind of viewed as heels. So to have the matches with the Rockers, it was two great teams and they could be pretty much taken either way. As they head into 1990, it feels like the Rockers are in a little bit of a stalemate because for whatever reason, they're not doing a lot. You know, they're not, they're getting some wins here and there, but they're not getting a title push. They're not involved in a major angle and they're just sort of floundering. But Sean says, as he heads to the Rumble in 1990, which is January 21st in Orlando, he's figured out that he can gauge how well his career is going based on how long the office lets him stay in the Rumble. He says, I soon learned that the amount of time you spend in there has no bearing on how your career is going. But that's how I felt back in 1990. I entered number 27 and lasted a minute. So thankfully it didn't have any bearing on my career. <laughs> Do you remember guys being, uh, maybe reading into their position in the rumble a little too much as to maybe a sign from the office as to where they were in the pecking order? Yes. You know, when we talk about, we'll be talking about the Royal rumble next, next couple of weeks, but the rumble always had its spots. You know, you had the diesel spot with the one guy that eliminates a lot of different people. You had the marathon man, somebody that lasts a long time in the Royal rumble itself. And then you have the bushwhacker spot where it's somebody that goes out hits the ring and is immediately eliminated. So it, it doesn't really, it's a good spot and it's a nice story to tell for the Royal rumble. But during this time, man, this is where the time that the rockers were going to hook up with the powers of pain, and all of a sudden, all their work that they had done up until this point, it was like a giant light was shown on them from the heavens above because they made the powers of pain look like uh, the Midnight Express. Wow. And they went out every single night and just had... God, in a lot of instances, I remember going to shows with Pat, and we would sit in the crowd and watch these matches. And every night, Sean and Marty would have these incredible matches with the Barbarian and the Warlord and just go, holy shit, how do you follow that? And it would have to be the, the match right before intermission, or it would have to close the shows. They were that good. Well, and they do that match through all of January and February. Come March, they start working with the Colossal Connection, which is Andre and Haku. And then we get to WrestleMania 6, which is April 1st. They get the uh, match with the Orient Express, and the Orient Express beat the Rockers by countout. We've done a full episode on WrestleMania 6, but one of the things we get a lot of questions about is on commentary, when the babyface announcers are sort of saying that the Rockers look a little sluggish, was that something that the office was uh, sort of mentioning because they wanted the guys to stop partying? They're sort of teasing that that's the reason they're going to lose. There's some sort of uh, heat with anybody. What's the thought behind a babyface announcer bearing a babyface tag team? It's called Gorilla Monsoon, being Gorilla Monsoon. And at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of direction on those that type of Thing. So, no, that was Gorilla either trying to make an excuse for the baby faces knowing the finish of the match and trying to make an excuse for the baby faces not going over in that match. But that's just Monsoon being Monsoon. 
April 23rd, we do a 79th main event with the Rockers and the Hart Foundation, and they go to a double DQ here in about nine and a half minutes. This feels like it could have been a feud that lasted for a really long time here. Was there ever any consideration to turning the Rockers heel here? They're all, you know what? That's funny because there always was. And Vince didn't think that people would accept them as heels, or at least not a serious threat as heels. He saw them as a, you know, a young, kind of the, that young hot tag team to attract the females and the younger demographic. He didn't think anybody would take them seriously as heels. Let's head to uh, SummerSlam 1990. It's August 27th in Philadelphia. The Rockers are going to take on Hercules and Paul Roma. They are power and glory. Of course, power and glory would win the match. And on the way there, just a couple of days prior to the show, Teresa and Sean, as Sean's wife, had moved to the Tampa area because that's where a lot of the boys were living at the time. He's riding his motorcycle to the gym, going about 40 miles an hour, when all of a sudden a lady in front of him stops completely out of the blue uh, he locks the bike up underneath him, and he jars his knee. Uh, it's hurting, but he doesn't really worry about it. He goes ahead and trains. The next day, which is the day before SummerSlam, they're wrestling in Hartford, Connecticut, and during the match, he goes to kick Greg, the Hammer Valentine, and his leg buckles. Somehow, he makes it through the match, but his knee's killing him. So he tells Pat Patterson the next day at, at SummerSlam that he could barely move. And Pat asks if he can at least just get to the ring. And he says he couldn't. There was nothing he really couldn't do, and they didn't want to cancel the match because they'd advertised it. So Animal from the Road Warriors said that he had taped some knees before, and he did some sort of weird tape job on his knee. And with that and a handful of pain pills, he ran out there, and Hercules attacked him with the chain. Uh, the attack forced Marty to wrestle alone and, of course, lose, but it also provided an explanation as to why he was being forced off TV. Now, we didn't have the technology we do these days, so what they discovered is he'd blown out his ACL and torn his meniscus. The doctor said it would be like nine months, but he wasn't going to get paid if he took all that time off, so he decided to instead just have the knee scoped. And the doctors cleaned all the loose cartilage despite not having an ACL, and he was back in the ring in just six weeks. Do you remember this knee injury, and how catastrophic is it when it happens the weekend of a pay-per-view? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't all that catastrophic, but it, it definitely doesn't hurt when you're counting on a match. The funniest thing that I remember about it was Vince like, Sean rides? Oh my God. He just doesn't know how to ride. He couldn't control the bike. Um, those little just things that kind of play back in your mind at, at times of news like that, that it's like, what? His knees fucked up, but. It doesn't help, and you know, any time that you've got plans for somebody and it takes them out for a while, yeah, it screws up plans. But I, I remember the whole thing, and I remember uh, taping it up and him getting to the ring. All we got to do is get you out there. The rest is history. Would have liked to have done that in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, many years later, but wasn't going to happen. So not too long after Sean's back, he gets the news that he's going to be working at a TV taping against Brett and Jim Neidhart, the tag champions. And it's going down in Fort Wayne, Indiana on October 30th, 1990. And the good news is finally here. The Rockers are going to become the tag team champions. And then everything fell apart. It's supposed to be a two out of three false match. 
and they're wrestling the first fall when all of a sudden the rope breaks right in the middle of the match. Sean yells, grab a hold. So Brett puts him in a chin lock and they just assume since it's a TV taping, somebody is going to come down and fix the ring. So we'll just grab this hold and then pick it up where we left off. It wouldn't look pretty to the live audience, but they could edit it up and we could still make it look decent for TV. So they're yelling at the referee. The referee's yelling at them. No one is coming to fix the ring. And this is well before the referees were wearing earpieces. So nobody's doing anything and nobody knows why. Eventually they win the first fall and nobody comes to fix the ring. So they start working. Nobody fixes the ring. They go through, they finish. Nobody fixes the ring. Um, they thought the match was the shits and the broken ring took the air out of everything. So they win and they tried to fake a celebration in the ring, but they both know this is not good. And they hope that they could just fix it for the magic of television somehow as you can even see Sean when he jumps out of the ring with the belt, he slams his hands against the canvas because he knows this was supposed to be our big moment and it's screwed. Were you there at this taping? What do you remember about this disaster? I was. The, the ring broke and that was the problem. It broke. So they didn't have, they didn't have, like right now, you go, uh, any show and, you could basically <laughs> rebuild a ring in a matter of minutes with everything that they have either under the ring or readily available close and nearby. They didn't have that back then. So when it broke, instead of just being able to loosen up the turnbuckles and get the rope back up to continue the match, they didn't have the part to fix the rope, and they're out in trucks trying to find somebody to get it. The match is continually going on, and Vince is like, just just keep going, just keep going. We'll fix it in post. Well, it kept going. The part's still not there. It's still not getting out. They finished the match, and it was like, well, we'll see if we can finish the damn thing in post. Take it back. And we're looking at it going, this is terrible, because you got half of a, you know, you got no top rope, and the guys are trying to do stuff. It was absolutely abominable and sent it over. I said, I don't know how to, I really don't know how to salvage this thing. And Vince said, we won't. We'll just, we'll just kill it. It never happened and move on. Well, here's what I don't get. Sean would write that he's hanging out over at Marty's house. The phone rings, Marty answers and he hears Marty say something like, it's okay. We understand that's fine. And he hangs up and tells them, hey, they've decided that uh, they're not going to acknowledge the tag title switch and they're not going to reschedule the match and let us do it again. They're just going to keep the belts on Brett and Jim. And they hear at the time that Brett and Jim had done some politicking to keep the belts. What really happened? I think Vince's frustration uh, at the time was one of, okay, we didn't get the match that we wanted you know what, just leave it, we'll do it on down the road. Our thought was, why don't we do it the next TV? Right. He's not, we've already got stuff, we'll just leave it on, on the Hart Foundation, we'll do it down the road. In Vince's mind, he was going to do it when he could plan for it again. It's just a Vinceism <laughs> that you can't explain because it's illogical, it made no sense, it made no sense to us at the time. But to him, it made sense. Just didn't happen. Erase that from your memories. Here, look at the light. Bam, it didn't happen. 
Doop, doop, doop. Coming out of this, for the rest of November, the Rockers are working with Power and Glory on the house shows, and then a Survivor Series in Hartford on November 22nd, 1990, which you can hear all about in our archives. The Rockers are on the Vipers with Jake Roberts and Jimmy Snuka, and they're taking on the Visionaries, which is Rick Martell, Power and Glory, and the Warlord. Uh, we've got a whole show on that, if you'd like to hear it. But it's the first time in history that an entire team is the survivors of a match, and, of course, that's not the side with the Rockers on it. Okay, this brings us to one of the more controversial topics of the Rockers' run. It's December 11th, 1990. We've got the Rockers taking on Lanny Poffo and Chuck Austin in Tampa. Austin played football in college, and now he's been training to be a pro wrestler for about six weeks. And he and a few friends had formed a small wrestling school and put on some small shows. And Chuck has said when he gets to the arena, he walks in the back, and someone asks his name and how long he'd been wrestling, and they put him in the match with the Rockers. So Gennetti tries to execute the rocker dropper move, where he twists Chuck's arm, and Chuck's bending down, and Marty puts his leg on the back of Chuck's neck. You've probably seen Billy Gunn, Dolph Ziggler. Who else used this move? Uh, well, I think the biggest one was probably going to be Billy Gunn. Uh, and then Chuck said Marty told him to hold on to his ankle. Chuck says that he and Marty talked about this move about 10 minutes before the match, and Chuck says that he expressed some reservation about falling to the mat without using his hands to break his fall. Chuck said he questioned Marty several times, and Marty says, I'm a professional, I'll protect you. After the move happened, of course, Chuck said Marty told him to roll over, and Chuck said he couldn't, his neck was broken. So Marty rolled him over, and Chuck couldn't move his legs, and his ankles were crossed as Marty rolled him over. So then Marty tagged Sean, and Sean went to the top and came off with a headbutt to the shoulder area. He tried to hook Chuck's leg, but couldn't get it up. And it's been written that Chuck laid there by himself for 20 minutes on the map before help arrived. In the process of the move, of course, Chuck's fourth, fifth, and sixth vertebrae were badly damaged, and he was paralyzed from the shoulders down. And it required over six hours of surgery to relieve the pressure on a spinal cord. Were you there that night? I was. It was in Tampa, Florida, uh, at the at the dome there in Tampa. And horrible, horrible accident. And it was a mistake in in the ring that, you know, obviously Chuck didn't know how to take the bump and was left to paralyze. He certainly wasn't alone for 20 minutes in the ring. Um had referees and officials and everything down there, but we, once we knew that he was seriously injured, it does take time because you have to have the paramedics come in and it did probably take 15, 20 minutes for them to actually get there on the scene and immobilize him to get him on the stretcher and get him rolling. But, um, no, it was terrible, terrible tragic accident. And those are things that, Unfortunately, from time to time, happen, and it absolutely sucks, and it's a hazard of the game. And that was one of the hazards of using local talent that you didn't know their true level of experience. I don't know. I didn't talk to Chuck that day or have anything to do with him or picking him for that match. But a lot of times, you know, guys just to get get work will tell you, how long you been working? I've, I've been working three or four years. Now, in those three or four years, you may have had two matches, but I've been going to the wrestling school for three or four years now. Um, so, and I'm not saying he did that. I just, 
unfortunately, the way things were done at that time, you took people for their word, and sometimes you'd get some inexperienced talent in there that obviously they had never worked together before that match, and this tragic thing happened. What's the reaction like in the locker room when a move like this happens? Well, your immediate reaction is concern because the last thing that you want is for anybody to ever be paralyzed. And that's, you know, the immediate thing when you watch it and watching it live, you know, didn't become clear right away. I remember watching draws live and knew almost instantaneously that, hey, wow, there's something wrong. When this happened, you didn't realize it right away because there was so much that continually was going on and it was a tag match and everybody was moving around. So it was kind of a distraction that you didn't notice it right away. But when uh, Sean went to go and pull his leg up to hook the leg and he was stiff, it was like, oh man, he's hurt. You don't know how, you don't know how serious. I think the first thing that always goes through the mind is that you hope, this terrible thing to hope, you hope it's just a stinger and it's temporary. And you want to put as far in the back of your mind that they're going to be seriously injured. But when they don't move, um, it's just you get a lump in your throat because their life is, is changed from that point going forward. If you haven't watched the tape before, it's on YouTube. Uh, you can just look for Rockers and Chuck Austin and you'll see it there. Uh, and it is pretty crazy to see. And it's evident, you know, and obviously you don't want this to happen. <clears throat> You've told us before that when you see a guy's ankles cross when they roll him over, that lets you know you're in trouble, right? Well, when you, you know, you, you just look for little telltale signs. That, that is one of them. And you just look below the neck. Man, are his fingers moving? Are his, are his uh, legs or feet moving at, at all? Is there any kind of movement below the shoulders? And when someone is stiff as a board or in an awkward position, it kind of tells you, okay, something's up with that. And, you know, like Steve Austin, when Steve Austin got dropped on his head, his, his arms were up, but his hands, his hands were almost locked kind of in a limp position. And that told you, okay, that's not a natural position. He was... He was momentarily paralyzed. So anything out of the ordinary that's strange, that isn't uh, natural in their movement, and you can pretty pretty much tell. Jesse Sorensen, same thing. The match was never shown on TV, right? This video is out there because it was released in court and Chuck Austin got a copy? I believe so, yeah. I don't. It, it never made it on air, no. Um, obviously, he sues. He goes to court. When you watch this, you can tell by the way the guy took the move that he had no idea how to take the move. Does Vince immediately sort of blow a gasket, not just at Marty, but really at whoever hired the guy that night? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously there's a lot of questions that are being asked. It's like, who is this kid? You know, who, who recommended him? I mean, your first, your first inclination is take care of them and make sure that they're okay. Absolutely. And, and go and get them taken care of. And then the next thing is, is what happened? And you, you know, everybody at that point is going to point fingers. Yeah, he was inexperienced. Oh, Marty didn't tell him. Uh, Sean, a lot of finger pointing. So. That doesn't really help anybody or anything, and it's a 
hazard that our business had at the time that we would just go in and, hey, everybody knows how to work. Somebody's got a wrestling school. How long you been working, kid? Okay, great. It, it's just a enhancement match. Um, you know, it's the same, that kind of a bump is a very safe bump if you know how to take it. If you don't, it's not. It's like guys that don't take the DDT properly. Uh, same thing. They go on top of their head and they risk the danger of paralysis for the rest of their life. When this happens, does the move get banned by the company? Is there like an edict from Vince, no more rocker dropper? I don't really. I think so. Yeah. I mean, for for a while, def, definitely their finish was over at that point. He didn't want to see it. Meltzer would but report. We, Go ahead. No, I was going to say, but we is obviously we would have different variations of it as years progressed and and went on, and it wasn't the you know quote rocker dropper. Meltzer gave this a lot of coverage in the May ninth, nineteen ninety four Observer. He wrote Austin now thirty seven was in a tag match. He breaks down exactly what we talked about. Um, instead, Austin apparently claimed he had been instructed to take the move, which he proclaimed he was told by Janetti was a piece of cake by taking a forward roll, which he attempted and wound up landing on his head, breaking his neck. Others in the trial testified he was never told to take a forward roll and that taking a forward roll was exactly the wrong thing to do. The move looked so severe that wrestlers backstage watching on the monitor feared he'd been killed. Bruno San Martino, who originally had wanted to not be involved in the case, was shown a videotape of it by Austin's lawyers and was so outraged that he became a key witness for the plaintiff. Do you remember Vince being fired up about that, that Bruno came and sort of testified against him here? Well, sure, because it's obviously an accident, and I would have to you know, agree with the very last thing you're going to want to do for that move that if you ever watch wrestling or ever seen the rockers, it's a, it's a pancake face bump. And he did have another hand to break his fall with, but yeah, the last thing that anybody would have told him would be a forward roll. So I don't know. That sounds like a lawyer, lawyerese trying to say, so they told you to take a forward roll because that's looked like what you were trying to do. I don't really know. Again, I wasn't there, but yeah, Bruno, uh, being involved with it was something that was not looked upon too kindly. It was initially feared by doctors that Austin would be paralyzed from the neck down for life. As more than three years have gone by, Austin has regained some of his feeling in his arms and legs and can get around with crutches, but he is still unable to control his bodily functions and his hands and legs constantly sting and burn. For the duration of the trial, he said because of his bladder control problems, he had to restrict liquids. Austin's suit originally asked for $3.8 million, although his lawyer, in his final request asked for seven million dollars as the award it is believed that only one in a thousand cases that a jury will actually award more than he was asked but it's extremely rare for the jury to award the total amount asked and almost unheard of that it would be more than six times the original request the jury awarded austin 4.2 million for his medical bills and rehab 16 million for pain and suffering his wife got $5.5 million for her suffering, and his two sons were awarded $500,000 each because of their limitations the injury placed on their father in functioning as a parental figure. The actual award will be slightly less because the jury determined Titan Sports was only 90% negligent 
Janetti was 5% negligent, and Austin was also 5% negligent. The actual damages from Titan are $23.5 million, and when Titan spokesperson Kurt Block said it would be covered by insurance, and $1.3 million by Janetti. The remainder is a combination of Austin's share of the damages an amount deducted because one of Austin's sons has already reached the age of 18 and an amount Titan had already paid Austin for his medical attention. Michael Hickenbottom, Sean Michaels, was originally named in the suit but was dismissed by the judge who ruled he had no part in Austin's injuries. But he did testify, and the decision is already in the process of appeals. So in the end, uh, this winds up being a pretty costly deal for the company. Um Securing a bond like this would have cost $2.5 million. When the verdict comes down and it's this amount of money, what's the takeaway from Vince? Well, not happy about it. And obviously looking at it as what what do we do to prevent this in the future? And one of the things that we did to prevent it in the future was that anybody that was coming in to work as an enhancement talent had to go through a process. And if no one had seen, and we put Killer Kowalski in charge of that, that Kowalski would view tapes and be able to screen talent before they ever got an invitation to work at television. And then that day they would put be put through a series of tests and moves in the ring the day of TV to make sure that they were able to do what they said they could do. And some guys would get there that day, find out that they weren't as skilled as they said they were or that you got a tape of highlights that was BS. So that was the fail-safe that was put in place because of this. One of the strategies that Titan employed is they introduced a videotape with dozens of guys taking the rocker dropper move from Gennetti just fine. And for a better visual, they even brought mats into the courtroom and had Dean Malenko, of all people, come in and take the move and then get up unhurt. And, of course, Austin's lawyer says that that's not fair. He's from a wrestling family with more than a decade of experience. Austin was a novice who didn't have the experience to be put in that position. In the end, the attorney for Titan, Joe Lopez, called the verdict an abomination, saying the jury didn't make a ruling based on testimony or evidence, but rather based on sympathy. Quote, the WWF and Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels didn't do a damn thing wrong. I'm absolutely shocked. There was no evidence for that award. What happened was tragic, but every witness, with one exception, testified that there is inherent risk of injury. Um, every wrestler knows that and assumes that risk every time they get in the ring. Somebody else from the WWF says, we thought the award was excessive. That's the spokesperson, Kurt Block. We feel that we weren't negligent. The insurance company handled the trial, and we don't expect the award to stand. In the end, was Vince sort of, fuck it, pal, this is what you got insurance for? Or what's the attitude? No, the attitude was that we had to change the way that we did business, and we had to make sure that the guys we were putting in the ring knew what the hell they were doing. Uh, so that's how we instituted the change as far as using extra talent at TV. Um didn't want to see that happen again. Yeah, I've got insurance, but you still hate to see anybody get hurt and be put in that kind of a situation. And as a company, you got to do the right thing and make sure that you protect yourself for the future. And you learn, unfortunately, 
oftentimes we learn by fucking up and learned a big one on this. Oh, it's worth mentioning that it was said that the normal business procedure regarding both jobbers and officials in regard to the amount of training before they're put in the ring to take potentially dangerous bumps is lacking and that the personnel had no training as far as what to do if someone was seriously injured in a match. Wilkes said that upon cross-examination, every Titan witness said that when someone is injured, seriously, the match should immediately be stopped. But in fact, that wasn't the case because the personnel was inadequately trained. Now, of course, these days, that's another level. Guys are constantly checking after every big move. You know, it's a peek behind the curtain for a lot of folks, I'm, I'm sure. But referees will go over and put their hand or their thumb or something in a wrestler's hand to get a squeeze to let them know that they're okay after a big move. And if there is some sort of an injury and someone doesn't squeeze back or tells them, hey, I'm hurt, they throw the big X up. Is all of that sort of beginning to be put in process at this point? Well, the, definitely the screening of talent, making sure that you knew all of that, all of where they are now, that's just a long progression of continually reinventing and trying to get better at what the hell they do. So you, you can put all those placements in it. And, and I'm going to say this in defense of the guys in the ring. I think that maybe Marty uh, being the first one to touch him might have known there were so many moving parts. I don't even know if the referee was in a position to see that or to see that something was abnormal. Um, but mistakes were made, and it's an unfortunate incident, and I feel terrible that it actually happened. But you got to live and learn and move forward from it. And I think that the systems that they have in place now and as we grew through the years to put these systems in place. You know, here, here's the crazy thing. Even when you have a an ambulance on site and you have paramedics on site, there are rules inside of some of these buildings that, well, that paramedic can't touch anybody if they're hurt. So they've got to call another paramedic from outside to come in to actually touch it. And they'll, like, secure a location and just let someone. I watched a guy in in the uh, uh, lobby of the arena who got his head kicked in in a fight, and the building, the EMTs that we had wouldn't touch him because they had to call someone from outside because of building protocol. Now I'm looking at this guy. It looks like he's going into seizures and thinking, what the hell are you doing? But there's there's crazy stuff like that that unfortunately goes on. I guess we should mention that eventually Austin was able to walk with canes and regain the use of his arms. But in 2015, there was a news story done on him using a motorized wheelchair and saying he's still in a lot of pain. Do you know if Vince ever had a conversation with Chuck Austin at all? I doubt he ever did. Um, the insurance wound up paying all of this, right? This didn't come out of Vince's pocket? Nope, insurance. Uh, does Marty Jannetty, do you think he had some sort of uh, umbrella policy or something to help handle some of this liability, or is this something he has a judgment on and has probably never made a payment on? You know, I really, I, I have absolutely no idea what Marty's personal liability was on all of this and, and how all of that was handled. Um, I could speculate, but that's all it would be at this point is speculation. As a result of this, did a lot of the guys start to get some sort of liability or umbrella policy to protect themselves? I know these days a lot of the boys have something like this and they pay thousands of dollars a year 
but when do you remember that becoming a thing, or is that just uh, still a bit of an anomaly in the business for someone? I think it's policy? still I think it's still an anomaly in the business. I think that a lot of guys don't do enough to protect themselves. You know, if and I think I think they should. Yeah, if you're making six hundred thousand dollars a year, then let's kick up five hundred bucks a month to make sure we can keep our income coming. You know. Yes. Um, how did the uh, WWF? Well, let's let me back this up. Did the WWF change anything besides the way they would screen enhancement talent after this? Was there ever any sort of that you can sort of draw back and say this is when that changed, whatever that may be? Because I've asked about insurance, and you said not really for the guys. And well, you know, protocol with referees maybe a little, but really, was it just we got to screen the enhancement talent better? That was the fail. That was the failure here. Well, that was that was the failure, and knowing what the hell you've got in the ring, man. You're you're producing a you know you're producing a major television product, and you're taking the word of somebody that's really, in some cases, walking off the street that you've never seen before. So just being more professional and taking care of business a lot better than we had in the past. A lot of it was the good old boy network, and oh, the, he's a good guy. He says this kid's a good little worker. Let's put him in there. Get him maybe never ever been in a ring before. And even if they had been in a ring, you get into a WWF ring that's a 20 by 20 with real ropes, not cable, and a completely different atmosphere than a 16 by 16 bumping southern ring. Um, yeah, we just got better at doing our jobs and a little more thorough. It's uh it's a weird time in the business and it feels like something that everybody would have been talking about for a long time and you know these days I'm sure they vet the enhancement guys a little more but even if they had a move like this they were unsure about they'd roll out the big crash pads before the doors opened and let the guys walk through it right well uh, b- hey and then we did that too if guys were unsure about something they went out and did it Jake the Snake showed me how to take the DDT Marty Janetti showed me how to take the bump over the top rope uh, and hang myself with Hulk Hogan. Um, so, you know, they did it then. That's why, you know, a lot of that, if, if he was really unsure, there would have been time during the day for them to go out in the ring and show him how to do it. Um, so it, it was being done then, and, it, and it's being done to even more of an extreme today. If somebody says they can hit the shooting star press uh, ten times out of ten, Vince go takes them out to the ring. So let me see it before I allow you to do it in my ring on my TV. You're going to do it on this crash pad ten times out of ten. Go. Make sure they can do what they say they can do. In January of '91, you guys are doing some shows in Japan uh, with the SWS, and it feels like this probably comes out of you guys wanting to have a stronger foothold over there, but not necessarily with New Japan. Um, and I found it kind of funny in doing my research for this. One of the matches over there was the Rockers working against Jeff Jarrett and another guy. But how does Jarrett wind up in Japan for this tour? Well, you know, it just kind of favors the daddy. This was during the time SWS was a Tenru's company that we were using for shots. And prior to this, we had gone over and we had done the big combo show with All Japan and New Japan. 
And the spinoff of that was Tenru breaking off and doing his own promotion. And Tenru had been a big star for the All Japan promotion. Vince was working with Tenru and just sending guys over, but Tenru was also looking for other young talent, American talent they could bring over. But that's funny seeing Jeff over there at that time. Jeff was just a youngster at this point. Royal Rumble 91 goes down in Miami. The Rockers get a win over the Orient Express. For the rest of January, the Rockers are working house shows against Demolition, but this time, instead of Axe and Smash, it's Smash and Crush. Do you think that made a difference with Marty and Sean of who they were working with? Do you think they maybe got along better or enjoyed working with Crush better than Bill Eady? Yes, definitely, because here you now have two young guys in Barry Darso and Crush, who are probably a little bit more willing and not as staunch in there. You know, I've got to get my shit in and I've got to be strong. Uh, on January 28th, they do a Superstars taping where the Rockers win a tag team battle royal to determine the number one contenders. And I found it kind of funny in my research that I would see on January 28th, uh, they also did a taping where Jerry Oates and the Brooklyn Brawler take on the Rockers. I mentioned that because Jerry Oates is the guy who recruited and trained Marty to become a professional wrestler. And now all these years later, Jerry's the enhancement talent. Marty's the star. Kind of fun. It all comes back around. Yeah, the Oates boys were big stars back in Georgia days. Uh, the Rockers are putting over their old roommates, the Nasty Boys, on house shows as we head into WrestleMania. Of course, WrestleMania 7 goes down on March 24th in 91. We've covered this in long form. Uh, in our archives, but Meltzer gave the match three and a half stars when the Rockers get a win over Haku and Barbarian. It feels like the Rockers have sort of stalemated out here. You know, they kind of opened the show at WrestleMania five with the Twin Towers, WrestleMania six, they're with the Orient Express. Here they're with Haku and the Barbarian. There still has not been this great anointing of the Rockers. Why do you think they kind of stayed at that level as long as they did? I think once the kind of the failed uh, attempt at putting the tag titles on them and Vince just going, ah, just just leave it how it is for the time being. We'll do it later. Later never came. When later never came, there was also a big push to say, okay, if we're not going to do that, then let's split them up and make them singles. Everybody kind of thought that Sean had potential as a heel and thought that Marty could be that ass-kicking babyface and really thought that Marty – uh, would do well. Both of them would do well as singles, but I think more people saw something in, in Marty Gennetti at the time that he was a little bit more, he was the older one. He was more mature. So looking for Marty to be that breakout star of the team, but it was kind of during this time that we were toying with the idea of breaking them up. On March 30th, the WWF ran a joint show with SWS and the Tokyo Dome. We've talked about this a little bit in our archives, but they drew more than 42,000 people. That's just uh, pretty amazing, especially when we hear that Wrestle Kingdom just did the biggest show in 15 years or 16 years or some such silliness. And here in a time when the business is down, quote unquote, in March of 1991, they're doing 42,000 folks. Um you left in May of 91, but let's talk a little bit about the Rockers while you're gone. During the summer of 91, Sean would write that he and Marty had been teaming for about five years, and the strain of spending so much time together was starting to get to them. And I know that we sort of laugh at that because we know 
now what type of a partier that Marty could be and Sean could be. But if you're with somebody on the road, seemingly 24 seven, 300 days a year for five years, any, anybody would have personality problems between the two, right? Are you ready to snap? Uh, I mean, I, you know, I did it with, with Vincent Pat to where there, there, I, all I wanted to do was just get away, just get away from any of them in, in any way that I could. Every time that I had an opportunity to just run, I would run. And Vince used to be like, God damn, you didn't check in yesterday, pal. Like if I would go home to Texas for a weekend, I didn't hear from you yesterday. I just want to be away from you. <laughs> God damn, leave me alone. But yeah, when you're all, especially being on the road, you're in the airport together. You're probably sitting next to each other. You get to the town, you rent a car. Hey, you want to go eat? Where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? Where are we staying tonight? Um, you ready to go train? I don't want to train right now. Well, let's go train. It's just that constant on you. 24 it's worse than being married you spend more time together with the guys that you're on the road with than you would with the wife if you just had a nine-to-five job no doubt about it because on a nine-to-five job you at least leave yes but, but here you you never leave um and they share rooms together too right and they had a lot of fun for some of that uh wrong show i guess now sean would write however there's some serious friction developing with each other uh, marty was going to be all about partying this is not to say i was not about partying but it was getting lopsided with him there's a difference between partying and losing one's balance and he was losing his balance he wasn't just partying to have fun he was doing the freaky kind of partying i'd done in birmingham marty was laying down and sleeping in the dressing room all the time and looking haggard in May of 91, Marty and I were in a Denver hotel room getting smashed with Roddy Piper when right in front of Marty, Piper starts talking about how I had a great future in the business and I had all this talent. The next thing I knew, Marty wanted to fight. I said I wasn't going to fight him, and he started to hit me again and again and charged at me hard. I had to defend myself, and we scrapped for a bit before Piper eventually pulled us apart. I passed out right after the fight and woke up the next day with a big shiner. I was already mad at him, but now I went looking for him. He had already left, so when I found the hotel he was at, uh, he opened the door and backed up, and I had planned to rush in and punch him, but he said he was sorry before I could. When we drank, we became stupid sometimes, and that was what happened here. We talked about through the whole commitment thing to each other and patched up our differences, and apparently, Bruce, this type of shit happened all the time, where they would have these big blow-ups, but they worked through the rough patches. Do you remember hearing that Sean showed up with a black eye or that these guys were fighting each other or that maybe the bloom was off the rose? I was actually, I was still there for, for the fight at the hotel and, and Sean showing up and, and actually both of them were pretty well messed up, but Vince, Vince was pissed. Vince was pissed. I mean, not now these guys are reverting back to, the problem and I told them I didn't want to have that shit anymore and now they can't even get along with each other now they're fighting each other so a lot of fingers were being pointed at that time and then I left you know right after that but I was I was there and it was we got fucked up that was the excuse we we had too much to drink and we were fucked up and 
we're just sick of being around each other. Brothers are going to fight sometimes. I was like, okay, well, you know, that's kind of hard to argue. So they accepted it. Obviously, the cops were there. There were girls there oh, yeah. who were thrown out. The cops were drawing their guns. Um, the guys were fired up at each other. And eventually, Randy Savage comes in, and the cops recognize Randy. And Randy's able to sort of talk some sense into them. They've got blood on them because they've been fighting. And the cops think they need to do something about that. And allegedly, according to Marty, Randy pulls this bullshit line out about, oh, you know, in wrestling, we use those blood capsules. This isn't real blood. This is, this is all show business and assures the cops that everything's okay. And they agree to release Marty and they just ask Randy for an autograph. <laughs> Randy's, uh, quite the salesman here. Is he not Bruce? Your brother, you got to understand, it's a little capsule. By the way, how you doing, uh, macho man, first name macho, last name man. Check my boots out, uh-huh. But, uh, you know, yeah, he's a good salesman and kind of do, you do what you need to do <laughs> to get the cops. Just move along, nothing to see here. So, the next day at TV, according to the rumor and innuendo, they had to meet with Vince and Vince made him shake hands in front of him. But Marty says he doesn't think Sean ever really let it go. A, did Vince make him meet and shake hands? And B, do you think Sean ever let it go? A, yes, Vince did make him uh, shake hands and tell him to get over it and move on. And I think Sean finally got over it. Back then, no, he didn't get. He wasn't over it at that point. No, not at all. I think Sean held a grudge and was was pissed off and wanted to go on, do his own thing. Sean wrote something like this. Um, I think Marty was frustrated. He and I had never discussed breaking up and going single, but I think he began to sense that me going on my own was a real possibility. It came up a lot when I was around Piper and DiBiase. I'll grill them for advice, just like when I was 19 and in Mid-South. I don't think Marty liked that because he believed I was worried what would happen to him once we broke up. The shame of that was Marty was and still is incredibly talented. He had the ability to be a great singles wrestler. Is this when you think... It became steadfast in Sean's mind that, man, not only are we splitting up, it's happening sooner rather than later. I think that that's when Sean really made the decision that if, you know, uh, Vince wasn't coming to him, he was going to go to Vince. And like I said, during this time, there was that push to say, hey, we, we might want to split them up and go with a singles run and, Try Sean out over here as a is a heel because he's got those heel tendencies. Pat was pushing for that for a while. Did you hear about the uh, situation with the Wheaties box? No, please tell me. So Sean says that things between Marty and him finally came to a head that fall. So it's fall of ninety one. You're not there, but they're at a shoot a uh, photo shoot for a Wheaties box campaign, and Bruce the Barber Beefcakes there, and the Road Warriors, and a few others. Everything's going well. And all of a sudden, Animal comes over and says, this thing is hardly worth five grand. And Sean says, you guys are making five grand? We're only getting $2,500. That doesn't seem fair. So he tells Marty, and Marty's even more upset. So they decide Marty should call WCW and see if they have anything. Before they did that, they mentioned that the Rock and Roll Express had just left WCW, and now there might be an opportunity for them. So Marty calls Magnum TA, who's doing booking down there, 
and said they could get $150,000 guaranteed with up to 200000 with incentives. At the time, Sean says they were making about $180,000, so it seemed like a good deal to him. And while they're still at the shoot, Marty says, I'm going to call the office. Are you with me no matter what? Sean said yes, but, quote, I really didn't mean it. I never never seriously thought about going anywhere else. I figured Marty would tell Vince we both wanted five grand for doing the shoot. Marty called and told the office that we were upset about the payoff and we were leaving the company. They didn't seem to care and didn't make us a counteroffer. I was hurt that they didn't care we were leaving and flew home to Florida pretty bummed out. Before I could speak to Marty, Vince called and said, quote, Sean, I had a talk with Marty, and I'm sorry to hear you guys are leaving. I understand about the payoff. It's not right, but there's only so much, and I wanted to get you guys on the box. I figured it was better than nothing. I understand that you deserve more. You've done a lot for us, and I'm sorry to hear that you guys are moving on. I just want you to know, Sean, I think you're an extremely talented man, and I think you have a bright future in this business. I think someday you're going to be a heck of a heel, and I want you to know whenever you and Marty finish doing the tag team thing, the door is always open. You have a heck of a future here. And I said, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to inform you that was something we couldn't take. I don't want to leave. Can I call you back? So at that point, Sean calls Marty and grills him. What would you say to Vince? And Marty says, I told him the payoff wasn't right and we're going somewhere else. And so Sean says, well, what are we going to do? Where are we going? And Marty says, we can go to WCW. So then he asks, who have you talked to? And Marty says he had talked to a guy named Joey Mags, who was the underneath guy there. He hadn't even spoken to Magnum. I guess it's strange that Marty and I were together for so many years, and I still didn't have any real insight into him. He would open up sometimes, but other times he would seem less than truthful. And in this case, about a possible deal done in WCW, now my career was in jeopardy. We have to call Magnum. I want us to stay here, but if there's something guaranteed, I'll go. Eventually, of course, you know what happens. Magnum says, we don't have that kind of money. We might be able to start you out at 70000 and then if you guys get over, we can always renegotiate. But it didn't take a genius to figure out that if you're going from 180 to 70, that doesn't make any sense. So he says, I said, Marty, this is BS. You never even talked to him before giving Vince the ultimatum. I'm not going. This is where I want to be. We've talked about from day one that this thing would run its course and we would do an angle and go singles. I think it's time to do that. I'm going to call Vince back and tell him I'm not leaving. Do you remember hearing about this back and forth and this miscommunication and maybe Marty sort of going into business for himself, or at least that's the way Sean's painting it here? Well, I, I heard about it on the outskirts. I, I had to chuckle because it's, it's the old wrestler just, you know, rib and to get guys riled up. It's like, God, you know, boy. I'm doing this shoot over here, man. This isn't worth $50,000, man. Good God. Why the? I don't know. I'll do it this one time, knowing that they're not making $50,000. Animal probably was making $2,500, too, and just doubled it to get a reaction and a rise out of, out of the rockers, which is exactly what he did. So, uh, you know, <laughs> guys just do that all the time. I've done it. You know, just as get a reaction out of somebody where it's like $500,000, I'm not going to take that kind of cut and pay. And just so they get that reaction and, and watch them and stuff. So I, I believe that probably uh, Animal and whoever else probably worked, worked them into a shoot. For what it's worth, Marty tells the story just a little different. 
he says they noticed that everyone was getting $10,000 for the appearance, and Sean said it was an autograph signing, and Marty said it was for a commercial. Anyways, Marty said they noticed everybody's getting ten grand. Even the tag teams were making ten grand apiece, but Sean and Marty were making five grand apiece. And Sean was so pissed about it, he said to him, let's quit, and Marty agreed and made the call right then. Marty said he got Pat Patterson and told him they wanted to quit, and Pat got Vince on the phone. Marty said they wanted to put in their notice, and this was their three weeks' notice before the Survivor Series. Vince asked them if they could talk about it at TV, and Marty said, no, we've already done our talking to you, and it didn't do any good. So Vince asked what the problem was, and Marty said, we just want to give our notice. Marty said that Vince agreed to let them finish up at Survivor Series, and then there was no need to keep them somewhere they didn't want to be. And Marty was happy because he was worried that they were going to have to leave for 90 days on their way out, but now they get to leave about two months early. So when Marty hangs the phone up, Sean's there, and Sean's jaw dropped and says he's going to let us quit. And he just kept saying, he's just going to let us quit. I don't think maybe Sean really expected that to be the case. Marty said he then called Sean, and Sean answered, and Marty said to him, tell me this ain't true. Vince said he called you and said this was all my decision. And Sean said, I thought about it, and you know what? You're single, and I'm married. Your house is already paid off, and I'm making mortgage payments. I can't afford to quit. So Marty said that Sean thought this was fine and asked why Sean called Vince and told him it was his idea to quit. In the end, this is a big game of he said, she said, and they agreed to meet at TV with Vince. Before they do so, Marty asks, what's going to happen to us? And Sean says, I'll turn heel, you'll be babyface, we'll sink or swim, it'll be fine. And Marty's not tickled with that idea, especially since it doesn't feel like it's his idea. And Marty says at the next TV taping, word had gotten out about what had happened. Some of the wrestlers were coming up to him and saying, we heard what your partner did. And Marty said that Wayne Bloom actually came up to him and says, do you want me to whip his ass? That was bullshit what he did. He was supposed to be your friend. This is bullshit. Eventually they meet, and he said Vince said he thought it was time for them to split. Marty said he and Sean needed to talk about it, and Sean was sitting there and said, I'm all right with it. Marty asked Vince what was going to happen, and Vince said, we're going to make Sean a superstar. And Vince said, we're going to have you guys have some barn burner matches. I can't wait to see them, but we want Sean over strong in the end. And Marty asked Vince, where will I go? And he wanted some reassurance that he wouldn't be dropped low on the card or worse yet, released. And Marty said that Vince replied, we see superstar in Sean, and we don't quite see that in you. And Marty says that was a gut shot to him. So he asked Vince, would you at least give me an opportunity to prove you wrong? And he says, Vince says, I love that attitude. I certainly will. And Marty says that he got started on that endeavor right away by getting drunk as shit that night. Not the best ending to a tag team in the history of tag teams. And Sean would go on to say that he hated that the tag team ended on such a sour note. But he also said that their relationship really was mostly superficial. They were drinking buddies and party guys, but they didn't have real conversations as men until he was in his late 30s and Sean was in his early 40s. What do you remember hearing about this split? There's been lots of rumor and innuendo that Mr. Perfect wasn't happy with it, Rick Rude wasn't happy with it. A lot of different guys kind of heard about what went down here and weren't really pleased. What do you remember? Well, I basically heard the rumor and innuendo, and I never uh, 
well, I take that back because I did talk to both Sean and Marty. I think they did the barbershop window thing in either Austin, Texas or San Antonio, Texas around that Tuesday in Texas time when they were doing tapings. I was actually there and both guys, because I knew how Pat felt about them and I knew what the plans had been discussed, you know, before I left that at that time anyway, what, what was that? At least six, seven months before there was the plan, you know, to split them up. They saw Marty is, is the baby face and Sean is the heel. So what had happened in between that and if the viewpoints change, I could definitely see that. I know going into it that day and talking to both of them, and this is superficial stuff because I wasn't working there and we're just talking about things. They were both excited about the angle and they were both excited about being singles and having the opportunity to either sink or swim on their own. Um, obviously it worked out for one and not necessarily for the other. Yeah, it's a shame that it happened this way. Um, it didn't happen right away though. After the fight, they continued to tag, but Sean took some time off for an injury and Shane Douglas filled in for him. Kind of funny because we're going to talk about that one day in the future happening again. So Shane is tagging with Marty and then leading up to the Survivor Series, the workers or the house shows have the Rockers working with the Beverly Brothers and the Nasty Boys. And then we get to the Survivor Series 1991. It's in Detroit and, um, Meltzer gave it uh, not a terrible rating, three and a half stars, and Janetti is the last guy pinned in the process. For the rest of November, the Rockers are putting over the Nasty Boys, and then uh, we do a couple of shots in uh, Japan as well, again for SWS. Somewhere in the middle of December, though, Sean got to fulfill his boyhood dream, I guess, at that time. He got to wrestle the Nature Boy Ric Flair in a singles match. Sean got knocked out. And fell out of the ring, and uh, Marty rolled him back in, and that allowed Flair to pin him, and that caused even more dissension between them. So a fun little storyline, but it had to be a thrill for a young Shawn Michaels working with a prime Ric Flair here, right? Oh, without a doubt, it was a boyhood dream, and being able to be in 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 the ring with Flair was a huge deal to Shawn Michaels because it's somebody had looked up to his whole life, and uh, pretty cool deal. You're working with your hero. Sean said of the breakup angle, I'd actually suggested to Vince that the Nasty Boys threw Marty and me through the plate glass window in the barbershop, Brutus Beefcake's interview segment. I love the old cowboy movies where the guy gets thrown out of the bar and through the window. There's something about hearing glass break that makes you take notice, and that window in barbershop was an angle waiting to be done. And then at the TV taping in San Antonio, we went on the barbershop. I super kicked him and tossed him through the window, and fans everywhere were shocked. The company didn't do things like that back then. And we got the impact we were looking for. I had serious heat now and started my singles career on a high note. The plan was to run a program with Marty after the barbershop incident. Unfortunately, he was having some personal problems and he was in and out of the company. I got to tell you, Bruce, as a kid, this angle is something I'll never forget. I mean, it's still probably the most famous thing in the history of the barbershop, right? It was off the chart, and that was something Dr. Paint did the gimmick glass there. And you see Marty coming up a bloody mess. That was from the gimmick glass, which is kind of crazy in and of itself. Superbly done, and it wasn't, it wasn't something that they were doing at that time. And to do it on the barbershop, the hottest damn segment since the Brother Love Show, made it even more special. 
So the original plan was that Marty was going to be off TV for a few weeks to sell the injuries, but that turned into about six months. Meltzer reported, here's the details on the arrest of Marty Gennetti, 32. He was arrested at 2 a.m. on January 25th after an incident at the Yucatan Liquor Stand, which is a Tampa nightclub. Marty and a female companion, Angela, whatever her name is, 19, were trying to get in the club when they apparently spotted her using a fake ID. When the police tried to arrest her, Gennetti got involved in the fray and violently grabbed the officer. Gennetti was arrested, and he and the lady were both searched, and officers found less than a gram of cocaine on both of them and a twist-tied baggie on Gennetti. Gennetti was arrested on possession of cocaine, possession of drug paraphernalia, and resisting the arrest with force. He was indefinitely suspended by the WWF, with the wrestlers being told that he was fired. So the reports we got of Gennetti failing a drug test appear to be inaccurate. He did appear on Sunday night in Japan for his SWS tour book through the WWF, so either the suspension had already been lifted or some aspect of the suspension was at work on Gennetti and the boys. Of course, Gennetti tells a different version of the story. I don't know that it really matters. Either way, Dick gets arrested for fighting the cops and he has cocaine on him, and the chick he was with was using a fake ID. That's what happened. Does word of this story make its way to Texas when you're just laying around smoking weed and going to heartbreakers every day? Without a doubt. That's why I didn't have anybody use fake IDs during that time or uh, ever carry drug paraphernalia in my pocket. Um, yeah, I heard about it. It was unfortunate because, again, I always liked Marty. But at the same time, it wasn't a shock or a surprise when you hear this kind of news. Ultimately, the cops wind up dropping the possession charge, and he has to serve six months of house arrest. But during that time, Marty says that Vince called a few times to check on him and see how he was doing. But Marty admits he was going crazy. He felt like he was in solitary confinement, but Vince always had some supportive words for him, and he thought it was pretty cool of Vince to do that. This was supposed to be building towards an angle for WrestleMania 8, and they were going to have the big blow-off match at WrestleMania 8. Of course, that never happened, though because Sean got into some trouble. In hindsight, WrestleMania 8 would have been a lot different if it was Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair on top and Sean and Marty underneath. I can get behind that. That would have been, yeah, that actually might have been kind of nice, but we will never know. On the June 8th edition of The Observer, Meltzer wrote, Former WWF wrestler Marty Jannetty was sentenced last week on the cocaine position charge and resisting arrest with force stemming from an incident in late January. Gennady, 33, was fired after the incident and is now working independently. Gennady's case was not adjudicated, and in exchange, he accepted six months of community control, which means being under the house arrest and 30 months of probation. So he must submit a urine test every week for three months and then biweekly for the following three months, and then will be subject to random testing over the next two years with 250 hours of community service. It's believed the judge was so hard on Gennady because he was tired of pro wrestlers like Gennady being portrayed to the public as role models and then behaving in a manner which makes those portrayals hypocritical. When you hear a sentence come down like this, doesn't this seem a little excessive to you? Do you buy into this as the judge trying to send a message to professional wrestling? I think every once in a while you're going to come across those kind of judges that want to be able to send that message and let you know just because you're a big star somewhere, you're not a big star here in my courtroom, so I'm going to do this to you. And, yeah, I can definitely see that, especially in Tampa where so many of the boys lived. 
while he had an opportunity to work the indies, he did no show the USWA and a few other independents around this time, which didn't probably do him any favors. But he managed to get another shot with the WWF, and he shows up on October 12th in Saskatoon of 1992. He comes through the crowd and takes the mirror that Sean was posing in front of and tries to hit him, but misses and accidentally hits Sensational Sherry with it. You were back by this time. How does Marty work his way back into the company? Well, uh, it was something that Pat and I had come up with and looking for different things for Sean to do and you never got it. You never got that singles feud with Sean and Marty. Marty had, had done his time and was taking these random drug tests and what have you. He had sufficiently convinced Vince, myself and Pat that he was on a, the straight and narrow path. So I thought, and I'd actually pitch the ideas. What about Marty Jannetty? And it was easier for me to bring up since I wasn't there when all the bullshit happened that I can innocently go, what about Marty? Hey, and, um, right time, right place, man. Vince bought it and we got to reenact. So you go back. The idea was let's go back and recreate in another way. You know, what split them up with that barbershop window. And that's how the whole mirror, because Sherry was doing the mirror posing thing for Sean. And the whole idea was I got Sherry sitting there holding the mirror up. Sean's looking at it. And all of a sudden, Marty Janetti. I said, what if he's looking in the mirror? Marty Janetti appears in the mirror behind him. And we rehearsed that, had that shot and everything. And then it's like Sean has seen a ghost and turn around. And that was the angle. It's good, but it was it's to pick stuff. up where we left off. And, of course, they start working the house show loop together. Sean's always going over, but they do it through all of November and December. We cruise on into Royal Rumble 93, and here's the big pay-per-view confrontation we've been looking for. I'm sure we'll cover it sometime soon. Royal Rumble 93 is January 24th in Sacramento. Sean gets the win over Marty Jannetty in just over 14 minutes to retain his Intercontinental title. And um, it's a pretty fun deal here. Meltzer gives it four stars. I thought the match was really, really good. What would you think? I thought it was excellent, and it was, you know, the, the beautiful thing about it is you love when a good plan comes to fruition, and we had planned this out at this point, but it was really something that had been almost two years in the making when you really look at it. So to actually have them deliver that match on a big show like the Royal Rumble, I know I was I was really happy, and I was happy for both guys. So let's talk about what happened. Um, when Sean was working with Marty through all the house shows in November, December, and early January, did they have any personal problems between the two or were they getting along here? For the most part, they were getting along, you know, at least the surface and everybody being involved. Yeah. Yeah. They're getting along. They're having great matches and, and everything's good. That's the report getting back to us. Well, Marty said he had a late night before this Royal Rumble match, and he says he yeah. was, quote-unquote, cutting up with some girls, and he didn't go to bed until 6 a.m. and had to be at the arena at noon. And Marty admits that he forgot a few spots in the match. But he said after the match, Vince called them both over, and Vince said he was very disappointed in the match and that he had been hearing how great they were, and he was expecting them to steal the show. But quite frankly, this was far from it. I find that kind of interesting because Meltzer gave it four stars and Vince hates it. So that tells you a lot about what Vince likes versus what Dave likes. Well, also, I got, and I got to tell you though, Pat and I loved it as well because we thought that, you know, the two of those guys had chemistry. Now, 
you look at it, could, is it what it should have been if Marty had been 100%? No. Was it was it great for their first match on a national stage? I thought it was, and I thought they did a hell of a job. So the very next day, Vince calls Marty over and says they have to let him go. Marty asked Vince if he was firing him over the bad match with Sean, and Vince said he was told that Marty was drunk in the dressing room. And Marty told Vince to test him, and Vince said no matter what you say, the decision has been made. Marty said it crushed him, and he felt like it was just an excuse. He didn't believe what Vince said. So he goes home and is in a drunken stupor for two months, and he's hanging out in the hood and doing a lot of things he shouldn't have done, whatever that means. Meltzer would report that Gennetti was fired because at the San Jose tapings, he was asleep in the dressing room. He claimed to be sleeping, but others felt like it was more like passed out. And there was some heat amongst the wrestlers on Ray Stevens, who reported it, because of the belief that Stevens was once a wrestler and the boys should stick together. What do you remember about this? Was Ray Stevens a stooge here and trying to curry favor with Vince and Marty Gennetti was wrong place, wrong time? Ray Stevens had come in as a agent in the backstage and Ray was helping guys with their promos in the back. And Ray was doing some stuff with Marty in the promo room. And Ray had asked Marty several times to come in and do his promos. Marty was perception passed out in the locker room. So Marty told Ray, you know, fuck off. I'll kick your ass. Ray. And I was there. Ray walked in to Vince's office and said, Vince, uh, I just need to know if I'm threatened, uh, do I have, <laughs> is it okay if I protect myself? Do I have the right to do whatever I have to do to protect myself? And Vince was like, whoa, whoa, stop. What the hell are you talking about? And Ray told Vince the story. He said, he goes, you know, he goes, I went in, I've asked Marty to do this three different times. And he's laying in the dressing room. He's asleep in the dressing room. I woke him up three times, told me he needs to get these promos done. He hasn't done it the last time. Told me he's going to kick my ass. If he comes at me, I'm going to knock him out. And that was the last straw. Vince had just had it at that point. <sighs> well, at this point, Marty goes to work in Puerto Rico. And one day when he's at home, he gets a call from Kurt. And he says, Marty, I've got your job back. Marty thought that Kurt was ribbing him, but he says no. Vince had told him what Sean said to Vince at the Royal Rumble. Allegedly, Kurt tells Marty that Sean said to Vince, I had to lead Marty around by his nose because he was so damn drunk in the ring. So Kurt tells Marty that he told Vince that's not true and that Sean was screwed up the night before the Rumble and passed out in his food at the restaurant with a bunch of somas so bad they had to call the ambulance. And Marty said he understood it from Kurt that Vince was bringing him back to beat Sean as punishment for all that. So Marty again returned to the WWF on May 21st on Raw and beat Sean to win the Intercontinental title. Boy, this is getting fucking tangled up here, Bruce. He said, she said, this is a bunch of infighting little girl bullshit. You were there. What happened? And and on top of that, you know, a lot of this, man, is... Really what happened? And it was, well, okay, you just let Marty go for allegedly being passed out in the dressing room, threatening an agent. Okay, that was kind of what Vince hung his hat on a little bit. But, you know, as, as time goes on, Vince is getting things from all these different sides. You just, 
you didn't know what side Vince was going to be on at the time. He's, he's over here one minute, the next minute he's over here. So he's in love with Sean one moment and he's pissed at Sean and hates him and wants him gone the next. He's, uh, Marty's the fuck up the next minute. Damn it. Marty's been painted with a bad brush all along. It was Sean. So it, it's, um, you're dealing with a lot of moods and a lot of unique and extreme personalities. So Marty is uh, running with a different crew here, and allegedly Sean says he felt that there was this unspoken uncomfortableness between them and that Marty and his crew now bore a lot of resentment to Sean. And it didn't help that guys like Davy Boy and the Nasty Boys like to stir things up and would joke in front of everybody about how Sean dumped Marty. And they all laughed, but Sean says he didn't. And in order to get Marty off to a good start when he came back, he agreed to drop the title to Marty, but then he'd get it back in a few weeks and then start a program with Kurt. And it would all come out with an open challenge. And when the the skies comes off, that's when it would be a big pop from the crowd when it was revealed that the opponent for this open challenge was Marty Jannetty. Now, of course, Marty's told, hey, we're bringing you in and beating Sean as punishment for him lying and passing out in his food. Sean says, no, I want to be a good guy here. What really happened? <laughs> Speaking of what-if scenarios, and you're looking at different what-if scenarios, and during this time, a lot of this is, is patting my baby, so we're throwing out different shit of what what could happen. What if? And that was kind of a what-if scenario. And Vince like, you're right. And then he just would, would go back and forth, man. Whoever, one day you're a prince, the next day you're a pauper. And it, it just depended upon which way the wind blew a lot. So that's how it came out. It, the, the idea was we were talking about some different things to do. Who was Sean, or who was Marty sort of hanging with during this time? God, I I really don't remember. I do I do remember Sean though was kind of hanging out with the Steiners and Sean was and Sean was hanging out with the Nasty Boys. That's why it's funny to to read some of this stuff. But he was hanging out with the Nasty Boys and and the Steiners and some of those guys. June sixth is a house show in Albany where Sean would beat Marty to regain the Intercontinental Title. That's also the debut of Diesel. Uh, I'm sure we'll tell that story on a Diesel episode, but. Do you think that Sean started started to maybe strategically align himself with guys to maybe insulate himself from some of the locker room bullshit? You know, I, I don't know if they, if it was that deep. I don't know. <laughs> he sat there and thought about, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to align myself with them. He had his group that he kind of hung out with, and, and it was the Nasty Boys and, and Kurt Hennig as far as Sean goes. Uh, the whole, the whole diesel thing came up where Sean called us one day and pitched Vinny Vegas to come in and we flew Kevin Nash up and he came and met, met him at Vince's house. And that's where the whole weak chin came up. Yeah. We'll talk about diesel yeah. another time. Let, let's get back to Marty though, because Marty is, um, only got a couple week run here and then he's going to start working with uh, Sean on all the house shows and he loses them all, all through June. And then uh, he gets a win on TV over Doink in a two-out-of-three-falls match on June 21st. 
He's back on Raw on July 19th, and he loses to Sean, and that pretty much wraps up their story. How happy was Sean to be done with this Marty Jannetty angle? I think Sean was really happy and relieved to be done with it. I think Sean had, had taken all of the bullshit that had happened between them, and he just wanted to move on and be done with anything Marty Jannetty at this point. Was Marty um, easy to work with at this time? Was he asking for any potential matchups or partners, or is he just trying to toe the company line and stay out of trouble? From my vantage point, Marty was just towing the company line, and Marty was happy to have a job. He was happy to be back and just wanted to prove himself. And every time that he would take three steps forward and two steps back. SummerSlam 93, Marty would lose to Ludwig Borga. Here's what Meltzer wrote. Borga defeated Janetti in five minutes and 15 seconds with the torture rack, and they're giving Borga the boxing gimmick. That's all he can do is punch. Janetti did his best, and it says something. When someone as talented as Janetti can't have a decent squash match with a guy, he and Luger don't sound promising. Half a star. Um, what did you think of Ludwig Borga and Marty Janetti at SummerSlam 93? Well, I actually thought Dave Meltzer was kind in that match. It was not good, and Marty trying to do everything that he can, but Marty was trying to get Ludwig over, and Ludwig didn't realize it and tried to do other shit. So I'm a good worker, no. And it's, yeah, wasn't great. They do a fun deal on the September 27th Raw where there's a battle royal where the last two men left would wrestle for the vacant Intercontinental title the following week on Raw, and... um the title's vacant here because Sean had been stripped because he was suspended for six weeks for taking steroids, which he claimed not to do, and we'll cover another time. Well, Diesel and Martell, the last two in there, uh, but it looked like Marty maybe had a shot, you know, as somebody who was fresh off of that run. Through October and November, Marty was putting over Martell, Crush, Owen, and the IRS on house shows, and that gets us to Survivor Series 93, which went down on November 24th. Marty would team with 123Kid, Razor Ramon, and Randy Savage to beat IRS, Diesel, Rick Martell, and Adam Baum. What a fucking hodgepodge-looking match that is. That almost feels like you just threw names in a hat and drew that shit out. Yeah, pretty much. It, was, it wasn't It was actually a hat. It was a brown paper bag. I thought it was a box of gimmicks. Well, you know. Two and three-quarter stars is the way that comes down. On December 13th, Marty's back on Raw. This time he loses to Johnny Polo. And he's putting over Jeff Jarrett and IRS on the house shows through the end of December and into January of 94. And then in a big surprise, on January 10th of 1994 on Raw, Marty and the 123 Kid would team up to beat the Quebecers to win the World Tag Team titles. Meltzer said of the match, uh, they won the tag titles from the Quebecers from a live hour in Richmond, Virginia. It was a three-and-a-half-star hot match with Kid especially looking great, going 18 minutes and 18 seconds, ending when Pierre was pinned after Gennady had him up for a suplex and Kid came off the top with a crossbody. I expect this to be a short title reign. What do you think of uh, putting the belt here on Marty and the 1-2-3 Kid? It feels like after years of chasing this belt with Shawn Michaels, he never gets the job done, and then as a one-off, Seemingly, he's teaming with one, two, three kid and gets it done. Well, during this time, you, you got to it's a crazy time. And like I said about Vince, you know, runs hot, runs cold. There was a period in here one week where Bill Watts was in during this time as well. And 
I had written a raw and I opened up the raw with Marty Janetti when he was coming back during one of his stints being gone for a while. And Vince looked at me and said, why are you opening up raw with Marty Janetti? I said, because he's going to have a hell of a match. So Vince at this point, I think had just written Marty off and it was, it was Sean's the guy we're going to go with. And he, I think he saw everything negative in Marty, but there were points when you could take a situation like, what do we do with one, two, three kid? What do we do with Marty? Let's put them together, make them a tag team, make them the champions for a little while, have some fun with it. I love it. Okay. Now what? <laughs> you know, it just Vince would run hot and cold on him. And that, that was what we had to battle all the time. Well, it doesn't take long. Uh, January 17th, a legit week later. Uh, the uh, Quebecers beat Marty and the kid to regain the titles at MSG. And uh, there's also a Royal Rumble Battle Royal match that night that Owen won. Uh, Marty was involved in it. But they're teasing the real Royal Rumble, which will be in Providence five days later. Marty comes in at 29. He doesn't eliminate anyone, and he's tossed out by Sean. Let's get to the February 28th edition of The Observer. Marty Jannetty was let go for what has to be a record fourth or fifth time after problems on the European tour. Uh, as a friend of the show would say, what's up with that? Oh boy. Was this, I think this was the one where Marty's dad was sick and Marty was over there, uh, trying to make a phone call and his phone call wouldn't go through to the States. So Marty proceeded to make his way down to the lobby of the hotel and take it upon himself to pull the gentleman behind the desk who had nothing to do with putting the phone call through or not putting the phone call through and uh, go to attack him before people got him separated. And it, it just was a crazy time. And Marty was going through an awful lot of shit. And, you know, he's he's up there with the firings and coming back, man. He's got a hell of a record. Yeah, we're not done yet. He starts working some shots over the summer with ECW. I guess he does it starting in February, but even in June, he's wrestling in ECW uh, and other independents. And then on September 25th, Marty is back again in the World Wrestling Federation, this time getting a win over Duke the Dumpster Jose. And later that night at a Raw taping, Marty would pin Skip. What's up with Marty's ability to bounce back here? Why does... Is it Vince that has a soft spot for him, or is it Pat, or how does he keep? I mean, he's got nine lives here. I, I'll tell you. I mean, Pat and I had a soft spot for him. We really did. I thought that Marty was a hell of a talent. And if you could just, God, if you could just harness that talent and and help extradite some of those demons that would always prevent him. You know, Marty would always get in his own way, and he was his own worst enemy. But he did have, man, he had the talent in the ring. And he was a great talent. He knew how to get people over. And we loved his work. And Vince is one of those people who loves to give other folks, you know, second, third, fourth, eighth, ninth, tenth chances. What's his relationship like with Sean when he's back here for the 900th time? Distant. You know, they're they're cordial, but they're not buddies hanging out or anything like that. The In Your House 4 pay-per-view we covered on our Goldust episode. This is where Marty would lose to a debuting Goldust. It only got a star and a half. Did Marty have an issue working with Goldust? No, not at all. 
Survivor Series 1995, drew about 14,000 folks in Landover, Maryland. Here we would see Skip, Rad Radford, Tom Pritchard, and the 123 Kid beat Marty Gennetti, Barry uh, Horowitz, Bob Holly, and Hakushi. That feels a lot like which one of these is not like the other. Um, in the end, the match got a rating from Dave Meltzer, uh, and I guess they were given a lot of time on this one. They got three and three-quarter stars. What do you think of this match? And is it one of the worst Survivor Series pay-per-views of all time? <laughs> I think it is the worst Survivor Series of all time. The match was okay, but that's all it was, was a match. There was nothing really to care about in this match. And it was a match. It was a lot of great workers in there having doing some really great wrestling, but I don't think anybody gave a flying fuck. The next night on Raw, Marty wrestled Sid to a no contest, and then through the rest of November and mid-December, he's putting over Goldust and 123Kid on the house shows, and that gets us to the December 17th In Your House 5, uh, and here we would see Razor team with Marty Jannetty to beat the 123Kid and Sid in 12 minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, this is when we talked about Goldust starting his feud with Razor Ramon. The match got a star and a quarter. Uh, here's what Melzer would write. This match was a disappointment as Janetti's work has been slow and sluggish since returning and Sid was pretty bad. Do you agree with Dave's opinion that Marty's work had maybe lost a step since he come back here? Is it freezing in hell right now? I do. And, and this was, you couldn't, you couldn't point during this time frame. You couldn't say, Hey, but he's having great matches because he, he had, he, he was a step or two off and wasn't the Marty Jannetty that we had, we had seen before and that we really wanted to have in the ring. The next night on raw Owen beat him. And then he's putting over Dr. Isaac Yankum DDS on all the house shows through December. That gets us to the Royal rumble 96. He's in the rumble comes in at 28. Doesn't eliminate anybody. And is thrown out by the bulldog. Sean, of course, wins the match. So their careers could not be more different at this point. On the February 19th edition of Raw, Marty would lose to the Ringmaster. It's kind of fun. Uh, on February 20th, he would debut a new partner on Superstars, Leaf Cassidy. And these guys are going to become the new Rockers. In the first match, they were in the World Tag Team title tournament, and it's their debut. So, of course, they lose to the Godwins. Uh, how does this pairing come together? Al Snow had obviously been hanging around the company for a long time. He had a lot of indie buzz coming out of Ohio and Michigan and that area. And, uh, you had tried him out as Avatar, I think. How does the idea, Avatar. how does the idea come together for Leaf Cassidy? Okay. 100% of the heat goes on me for this one as well. Um, you know, when we, when we did the, the new WWF, the new generation, I remember Vince giving this whole speech about, you know, what do laundry detergents do when they, they don't really have it? It's the new formula, new and improved. If you add new onto something, it makes it fresh all over again. You don't have to change it a whole lot. You just tweak something and it's new. So trying to think of something to do with Al Snow and Al Snow is, is got a very wry sense of humor. He's a funny son of a bitch. Um, and he's actually got a lot of personality. So we were thinking of doing some different things. Uh, well, we have one half of the rockers. What if we had the new rockers? And 
He's like, well, who are you going to put with him? I said, what about Al Snow? But we changed his name. You know, he's not Avatar. Now he becomes, and we took uh, Leaf Garrett and Sean Cassidy or David Cassidy, and that's how we came up with uh, whatever the hell his name was, Leaf Cassidy. But, <laughs> yeah, 100% mine. I take all the credit for it. I did it. I did it. What's wrong with you? Uh, <laughs> Marty actually hey, I, blames I, Sean for this new, um, this new rockers moniker. Do you remember Sean having any sort of preference one way or another about there being a new rockers? He had zero input on it. Nothing, none, zilch. When Sean wins the world title in 96 at WrestleMania 12, what's, uh, do you ever, Talk to Marty about that. Does Marty have an opinion? No, never really had any specific conversation about it. You know, for me, I wanted Marty so badly to succeed and to break out of that damn shell. Really and truly did, man. I wanted it so bad because, you know, makes your predictions come true and it just, just didn't happen. And it, it was, it was disheartening. I mean, he's pretty much enhancement talent here. I mean, he's he's losing to uh, the Bushwhackers. <laughs> Savio Vegas beating him in qualifying matches. Um, oh, he did get a win over the Hardy Boys, which is kind of fun. May the New Rockers, nineteen ninety six. That's worth mentioning. Uh, throughout June, the New Rockers are working the house show loop against the Bushwhackers, Aldo Montoya, and Duke Jose, and the Rockers are winning those, which is good. King of the Ring 96, we saw the Body Donnas get a win over the New Rockers. And then the next night, Sean beat Marty, and Cornette came out with Marty in this match because it fit the storyline that they were doing. Uh, and through the rest of June, it's uh, the Bushwhackers getting wins over the New Rockers. Uh, you kind of have an idea of what this looks like for the end of the run here, but um, he's working, which I guess is good. SummerSlam goes down on August 18th, 1996, and of course we've covered this in our archives. We've mentioned before that this is the match where uh, Skip was hurt. He had a broken freaking neck. Uh, so Skip and Zip are working as the Body Donnas here against the Godwins and the New Rockers and the Smoking Guns. It got a dud rating, and uh, you can hear all about it. In the archives. Let's get to the next month. It's In Your House 10 Mind Games. Marty's working with Savio Vega in the free-for-all, and they get a half a star. And uh, Survivor Series 96, also something I can't wait to talk about. One of my favorite pay-per-views of all time goes down on November 17th. Marty managed to sneak onto this card, too. It's Furnace and LaFawn teaming with the Godwins, and they beat Owen and Davey along with Leaf Cassidy and Marty Jannetty. Uh, ultimately Meltzer would not be that big of a fan of the match, but he didn't hate it. He gave it three and a quarter stars. Uh, he's apparently a big fan of Furnace and LaFawn. Exactly. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Through the rest of November, uh, the new rockers are putting over Furnace and LaFawn on the house show loops, and he does make Raw with uh, the new rockers. <laughs> he loses to Piroth and Cibernetico on December 16th. And if you were looking for his last match on the World Wrestling Federation, there you have it. Uh, Shawn Michaels went on to have countless five-star matches and world title runs and the first Grand Slam champion. Meanwhile, 
uh, Marty is sent out on his shield by Piroth and Cybernetico on December 16th. What happened? How does Marty's run end here? Is his contract up? Does he piss somebody off? I don't know the full story. I just know that's his last match. The really and truly Vince was again done. I'm done. What the hell are you going to do? Why are we wasting our time on the new rockers? What? I see nothing. We and Al and and um, Marty, I think, were both done during that time. But it just got nothing for them. Next, don't want to see him again. No rhyme reason. Not really. Didn't need a reason this time. Marty said sometime around 1999, Sean was doing his Texas wrestling promotion. The I guess it was TWA. Is that right? Is that what he called? Uh, it? Yeah, I think so. So anyway, Marty says that Sean called and asked if he'd be interested in doing a rocker reunion in his promotion. And Sean said, if it's good, I can tell Vince to bring it up there. Marty said he was all for it. And then Sean later called back and asked what Marty wanted to be paid. And Marty said because of their story and their history, he would have done it for free. So he told Sean just pay him whatever he wanted because he knew Sean's budget was tight. And Marty speculates here that he thinks Sean is still partying because he feels like Sean's slurring his words pretty bad. And Sean takes Marty saying, pay me whatever, as an indication that maybe Marty doesn't want to do it. So he kept asking Marty, so you don't want to do it now? And Marty kept saying, no, I'm not saying that. Just pay me whatever. Well, it wound up never happening. And Paul Diamond, who was doing the booking for Sean later, asked Marty what he did to piss Sean off. And Marty said he didn't do anything. All he did was say it didn't matter what he paid him. Did you hear about this miscommunication in 99? No, I never heard it. During this time, you know, Sean was doing his own thing, and it wasn't really until uh, probably 2000, maybe late 1999, 2000, that I actually tried to break the ice and went down there and met with Sean. And that was when we hired Daniel Bryan, Lance Cassidy, Spanky, um, I think that was it. I may be missing one. You said Lance Cassidy, but you mean Lance Cade. Lance Cade, yeah. Um, Believe it or not, Marty's gone from the WWF for nine years, but then comes back on March 14th, 2005. He reunites with Sean, uh, and they defeat La Resistance. They come out to their old entrance music, and Marty gets the pin after using the rocker dropper. I got to tell you, man, I was, I guess, 24 here. I loved this. This was like being a kid again to see this happen. I was all for a rocker reunion, even knowing this doesn't have legs, but it's fun for what it was. How does this come to be? A feel-good moment and kind of a, a nice feel-good moment for Raw. And I think it was Brian Gewurz's idea to what if we had a rocker reunion and did something neat here. Kind of fun because a few days later on SmackDown, Marty wrestles Kurt Angle. And Angle's, of course, preparing to wrestle Sean at WrestleMania 21. And Angle claims since Gennady had said that he taught Michaels everything he knows while he was part of the Rockers, maybe he could teach Michaels how to tap out. And he forced him to submit. They went about 20 minutes. Um, what did you think of that match? All in all, considering how long Marty had been away, I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was good, and I thought that it, you know, hopefully was a point. And, you know, during this time, you get your feel-good moment, bringing Marty back with the Rockers. You have your reunion. You tell the story with Kurt. Um, it was a good story, and it was something that everybody could relate to. But there were no long-term plans to bring Marty back. It was bringing back for this, and then we see where we go from there. 
So the idea was, let's do the tag match as like a warm-up to sort of reintroduce him to the audience on Raw and then have the match go down at SmackDown. Uh, that's really pretty good booking. So Yeah, it's, it's feel good and, and remind everybody of that story. Um, Sean wrote, over the years I'd lost touch with Marty. Then right before Bad Blood in 04, I was working a show and one of the extras asked me if I'd talked to Marty lately. I said, I haven't talked to him in a long time. I'd love to talk to him, though. And the guy says, I just saw him at an independent show. I have his number. I had to run off to a meeting, so I says, can you write it down for me and put it in my bag? Don't worry about going in my bag. Please put it in there. So I called Barney a couple days later at the airport on my way to Bad Blood. When I got off the plane, there was a message saying it was good to hear from me and that I should call him back. So I called from the airport, and this time he picked up. So they called up, but he says, Marty, it's Sean. How are you? And Marty says, not that good. He said he'd just been caught driving with a suspended license, and he was probably looking at doing some time. So he was still sort of lost in his troubles. Sean wrote, I wanted to help him. Marty, why don't you just come out to this Christian Athletes Conference that I go to every June? I'll fly you out there. I promise me. Just promise me you'll go. I'll take care of everything. I'm not going to beat you over the head with a Bible, but it would be a chance for us to talk. And he agreed to come, and they met at the conference. And the first night there... They were doing an orientation, and then they gave an altar call. Marty said the sinner's prayer, and I asked, did you say that prayer? And he says, yeah, Sean, I've been saved lots of times. I grew up in a Pentecostal home. So we began to talk, and he told me things I never knew about him all the years we were together. His mom was a strict Pentecostal lady, and she had left a bad taste in his mouth about church and God, and he believed that everything that goes wrong is God's fault, and I just listened to him. Do you remember hearing that these guys had sort of reunited over religion and Sean had sort of reached out in this regard? I knew Sean had reached out and I knew about Sean bringing him out to the, to the meeting that he has and had tried to, you know, do something for Marty. And this was during a time that, that Sean was very active. Um, beyond that in any detail, no, I really hadn't known to this extent, the detail of it, but I did know that Sean had reached out and was trying to help Marty. Sean wound up baptizing him in a pool on that trip and they kept in touch and tried to be accountable for each other. And that's when Sean called and gave him the good news about the rockers reunion. He says, about the only thing that didn't go perfect is when we messed up a little and we did our double nip-up. The crowd gave us a standing ovation on the way back to the dressing room, and I couldn't have been happier. I was wearing one of the biggest smiles you've ever seen. Sean should have, Marty should have been ecstatic. Instead, he was a little down. He's a little bit bummed about the du- double nip-up. You know how we were, he said. I just wanted everything to be perfect. The next night, Marty went out and tore it up with Angle. And Stephanie called me and said, Vince says Marty looked great. He's wondering if we should hire him. Do you think we need to give him a job? I said, I'll tell you this much. Put Marty Gennetti with every 25-year-old that comes in and tell them if they can't match his passion and desire when they're out there with him, then they need to get in another line of work. He still loves to do this, and he's still good at it. So after Stephanie called, Kurt called and said that Marty was great to work with, and John Laurinaitis, the head of talent relations, called not too long after that and said they were going to offer Marty a job. I thought it was tremendous. So quite a little redemption story here, that after all the BS, he's getting yet another shot. You were there for this. Are you and Pat sort of looking at each other, high-fiving, or is this at this point <laughs> a little bit like, holy shit, how many times are we going to do this? 
Well, this is a, this is a different time, you know, and this is, this is during a time of a lot of the writers and Stephanie and creative and what have you. So it was, it was a different time and it was more along the lines of how can we tell the best story? Um, yeah, I was definitely happy that Marty came back and looking for, you know, for me personally, and, and I'll say it for Pat too, it was redemption every time that Marty would come back and have a nice little run in there. So at this time, after all these years, for him to come back and do that, and he did exactly what we needed him to do in the angle uh, with Kurt Angle and Sean. So I was happy for him, and, and really, it was really nice to have that kind of happy ending a little bit there for Marty. On the uh, February 20th edition of Raw, Sean was against four of the five members of the Spirit Squad, and it's their in-ring debut. And he's attacked by all the members, and then Marty does a run-in to make the save. And later on Raw, Vince comes out and says he's going to offer Marty a full-time contract, but in order to do that, he's got to join the Kiss My Ass Club next week on Raw. Of course, Marty refused, so he offered Marty the chance to break Chris Masters' full Nelson, the master lock. They do an angle with that, that nobody can break the hold. And Marty looks like he's about to break it, but then all of a sudden Vince, who's here officiating the hold, hits Marty with a low blow, and that brings Sean out to make the save, and then Shane comes in and knocks him out with a chair. So Sean and Marty are supposed to continue the program with the McMahons, but Marty is absent for the next episode of Raw, and Triple H and Sean are reunited as DX instead. On March 3rd, WWE.com would announce that they had severed all professional ties with Marty without any further explanation. Vince, once again, I'm done. <laughs> so count that. How many times does this make now? 73. Here's the question. Yeah. What did he, what changed? I mean, he's in an angle with Vince. I mean, he's Vince. Worked- Vince being in the ring and not feeling it. Vince being out there and not feeling it and not feeling anything and other than being out there with Sean. And he felt that by putting Sean out there with a guy that's older than him makes you remember how old Sean is. She didn't want to do it that time, especially when you're out there with a bunch of kids. Yeah. So you've got an old guy, Vince. You got old guy, Sean, eh, older guy, Marty. He didn't want to do that. So it wasn't, at this point, it wasn't that Marty was fucked up. It was just Vince changed his mind. I don't think, yeah, I think this was all Vince just kind of changed his mind. I don't remember Marty being fucked up here at all. So that's going to prove me wrong now. No, that's on March 3rd. On September 15th, it was announced on WWE.com that Marty Gennady had signed a new contract. (laughs) (laughs) It would be returning to work as a veteran with younger talent. They also stated that Marty, Brad Armstrong, and Rodney Mack could also be granted full-time contracts pending the success of this initial venture. That was on September 15th. Meltzer reported that Marty was released on September 29th. <laughs> on when? On when was he announced? Wait, September 15th we announced we hired him, right? September 29th he's announced as being released. Oh, I have I, I can't speak to that one at all. Sorry. Marty said on his MySpace page that it was not true that he was not released. Fast forward, and the January 07 issue of the WWE magazine did say that Marty had been fired. On December 22nd, 
Marty got on his MySpace and said it was the boogeyman who had been fired and not returned WWE's phone calls and insisted that the article in the magazine was false. JR got on his blog on his website and said Marty was in fact no longer with the WWE due to a court order in Florida preventing him from traveling on the road. On December 3rd of Raw, Mr. Kennedy, who was feuding with Shawn Michaels, said that he would speak with three individuals who knew Michaels very well, and the imposters were dressed as Diesel, Razor, and Marty. Uh, all along with a fake Shawn, they were all hit with the Sweet Chin music by Shawn Michaels. And on the next week of the 15th anniversary of Raw, Marty appeared alongside Shawn in an interview, and Shawn wanted to see what would happen when Kennedy fought the real Marty. Of course, Kennedy won the match. Well, that had to be it, right, Connor? He never came back after that. On October 19th, 2009, <laughs> Marty made a surprise return and lost to the Miz. <laughs> I mean, this is holy shit, oh, is God it not? Damn. I mean, unbelievable. Mark. Marty has to be there for the 25th anniversary of Raw, does he not? He has to be. He has to be. Oh, my God. I guess I should uh, ask you here, you know, because I don't know. Well, um, before we get into the rumor and innuendo, in your opinion, does Marty Jannetty belong in the WWE Hall of Fame? I believe the Rockers do. And Marty Jannetty's on the Rockers, so Yes. As a as, as one of the rockers, yes, with Sean. I do think that as a tag team, yes. Sean's already in. How many times, I know. How many times are they going to put him in? Well, I don't know. Maybe they, how many times are they going to put Flair in? Well, at least, at least one more. Okay. So uh, then Sean has to beat that record. Well, yeah. So he'll go in with DX, <laughs> right? And he'll go right. in with uh, the rockers and he'll go in with the click. So there you go. There you go. Um, is it safe to say that Marty holds the record for the most times he's been fired? It's either, it's either, uh, Marty Jannetty or the Iron Sheik, one of the two. In fairness, on Tuesday the 23rd, you might be working your way towards that. It, this would only, well, I'm, no, that would mean they would have, they would hire me again. Well, I'm, I'm gonna, not, I'm going to count it hired as being for anything. brought back as a one off and done away with. Where would you rank the Rockers as a tag team for the WWF? In the top five, I think they were uh, one of the best teams ever. You know, every time we do a tag team, you always say top five, and then you never list the team we just said ever again. That's right. So, Demolition's your number one all time? Or is it New for Age the w, Outlaws? For the WWF, yes, Demolition. Where's New Age Outlaws? Did I say New Age Outlaws in the top five? I said they were in the top ten. Well, you said top five. Maybe okay, said, well, maybe, maybe I did. said greatest. You, you like, who was the greatest? I, I think you said the New Age Outlaws were the greatest. Okay, the New Age Outlaws are the greatest. All right, so a minute ago it was Demolition. Now it's back to the New Age Outlaws. Are the Rockers also the greatest? I think the Rockers are the greatest of all time ever. I think that's a new T-shirt. Just we'll have, we'll have <laughs> a blank. We'll have a blank and we'll say is the greatest tag team ever. <laughs> ever. Top five. Top five tag teams. List twenty tag teams. <laughs> Uh, Bruce's you, Bruce's top five tag teams of all time. It's just a small newsprint of every tag team ever. What do you think their legacy is going to be, the Rockers? 
you know, for an insider in the business, I think that their their legacy was how well they worked with everybody on the card and in any and every situation they were ever put in. To me, that's their legacy, and I thought that they they served that purpose. And uh, man, they got the job done every single night. I can't really go back when they were a tag team as the Rockers that they ever stunk the joint out. Everybody has a bad match. They tore it down every night. Let's run through some questions on Facebook. We should remind you that coming up next week, we've got the Royal Rumble 1998. So set your calendars if you haven't already. Join us on noon the 19th to enjoy Royal Rumble 1998. If you've got some questions, you'll be able to ask those questions over at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And don't forget on the night of the 19th to come see Bruce and I at Barclays Center. Tickets are on sale right now for just $35, and you can pick them up at boxofgimmicks.com. Go ahead and set your calendar as well, because the following week on the 26th, we're bringing you something pretty cool. It's our second-ever watch-along gimmick. It's Royal Rumble 1988, the very first one. Kick it old school with Bruce and I on the 26th. Set your calendar. We're going to announce the next poll on next week's episode, and that's going to come to you on February 2nd. Let's get to some rapid-fire Facebook questions. Bruce, are you ready? I'm ready. Go. Tim wants to know, was it always going to be Sean that turned heel, or was Marty ever considered? That was always the very first consideration. Uh, Jed Johnson wants to know, were Sean or Marty known for any kind of physical abilities, a particularly strong bench press, hand strength, any of their workout practices worth highlighting? Just great workers. Uh, Mohammed wants to know, what do you think was the difference between Sean becoming a star and not Marty? At what point did the office realize the difference in quality? Um, it was more of a difference in attitude, and I think that Sean had the star attitude maybe a little bit more than Marty did. Adam wants to know, what were Sean and Marty's reactions to the Chuck Austin match? Did they show remorse? Of course they did, yeah. I mean, it, you hurt somebody like that, of course you show remorse. They were upset. Do you think that injury contributed to any of Marty's substance stuff, or is that me reaching? Uh, it's probably you reaching, but I wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a big reach. No. Well, I mean, I know he was partying before, but that may have turned the volume up on it. I, I it would me. Uh, Riley wants to know: Al, Could Al Snow and Marty have gotten over as a team if they were given their own gimmick instead of being referred to as the New Rockers? The New Rockers is the best tag team in the WWEF ever. History. History. Uh, Chris wants to know, was Sean ever a diva during the Rocker days like he was when he became the Heartbreak Kid? No, not that I remember. They were both cocky, arrogant little pricks. Mark wants to know, I believe that Marty was as good, if not better, than Sean. Do you believe Sean was intimidated by Marty's ability and did his best to sabotage his run? Sean did nothing to sabotage Marty's run. Marty did that all on his own, and I believe that they were both, I, I want to say they were both equally great, and Sean had the opportunity, made the most of it. Well, you say he didn't do anything to sabotage it, but do you believe the story about Vince telling Kurt that Sean told him that he had to carry him around by his nose because he was drunk at the Rumble? That Kurt told him that? I don't believe, I, I would believe Kurt told him that, yeah. But, you, but you, I don't know. You don't believe that Sean said that to Vince, really? N probably not, no. 
Uh, Will wants to know, after the split, why didn't Marty get repackaged in any way? He kept the same same style gear and music, basically the same gimmick, just solo. In my opinion, he was every bit as talented as Sean. It just seems that with Vince being a genius, there was no effort put into something someone with such crazy talent. Well, again, it just goes to the things that people weren't seeing, you know, behind the scenes and uh, after the cameras were turned off that affected Marty's push and not necessarily that. But the guys were responsible for their own gear and coming up with their own gimmicks at that time. So that was something Sean made a change. Marty didn't. So Papa Shango just said, hey, I'm going to be a voodoo doctor. No. You just said they came up with their own That was gear something different. No, I'm saying that with those guys at that time, they came up with their own gear and their own looks. I'm just being a smart ass. Yeah, I know uh, you are. Damn it. Dustin wants to know, what are Bruce's top five wrestling mullets from the 80s? Well, we know you're number one. Hey, now wait a minute. I never had a mullet. I had My hair was all one length. Okay, I had a mullet for a little while, but still. Uh, Sean, had, Sean had a great mullet. Jake? Jake's mullet's got to be up there he, at the top. He had a skullet. No, he had a he had a mullet there for a long time. He had a little bit of hair up up top. Um, let's see. Taker had a hell of a mullet when he first came in. Dan Spivey, um, and Brian Blair. Well, there you go. Ian wants to know: Was the Janetti Michaels Intercontinental Title match where Marty won the title the best Raw match in Bruce's opinion ever at the Manhattan Center? Not ever. It was a great one. Bobby wants to know, Survivor Series 95, Marty Jannetty eliminated Skip with a powerbomb off the top turnbuckle, which at the time was a crazy high spot that looks like it would have beaten anybody. Years later, Candido would use it as his finish in ECW and WCW. My question is, whose idea was it that the top rope powerbomb, and why didn't either of these guys use it as their regular finish? Well, it was probably because of the fact that it was used as a stupid, crazy high spot, it was probably Chris's idea. And uh, it should have been a finish, frankly. Joey wants to know, was it ever a thought to put Marty into DX? No. Nick wants to know, what products did the Rockers use to get their mullets so gloriously silky smooth? Uh, horse hair for mane, or horse mane hair uh, conditioner. Tony Barker wants to know, was there ever any consideration to bring the Rock and Roll Express in after they left Crockett to feud with the Rockers and the WWF? Vince couldn't stand them. No. Mike wants to know the best tag team to never win the titles is it the Rockers? Never to win the titles? That would be a great yes. Well, you just said they were the best ever a minute ago. So, so yes. So, yeah. so of course they would be. Uh, Andre wants to know why was the Intercontinental title switch where Diesel debuted not shown on Raw? They had a match of the year just three weeks earlier. You'd think a title switch and a debut of a bodyguard would be a natural match for Raw. Well, I think Andre should go and, and write TV for the WWE. That's a shitty answer. I mean, why, why did? Well, but again, we were selling house shows and trying to tell, let people know that anything can happen on house shows and was that make so a reason for people to go there live. That was hard, dickhead. Uh, ben wants to know any good rockers party stories. They both seem to have hit the GHB pretty hard. We haven't talked a lot about GHB in the WWF, but. Uh, a friend of a friend tells me that GHB was like the it drug in the WCW locker room for a long time and maybe a personal favorite of Chris Benoit's. What do you remember about GHB in the WWF? Well, GHB, when it first came out in the late 80s, I thought was a, a hell of a supplement. And it, that's exactly what it was. It was a supplement from Germany. It was a bodybuilding supplement to help you cut fat and 
help you sleep. But then, as is usually the case, if you uh, give it to a bunch of athletes, they're going to abuse it and try to find, well, if one scoop does this, I wonder what 18 scoops will do. So um, anything in excess is not good. Moderation. Just think moderation. Mr. Thomas wants to know, were the matches against the Brain Busters some of the most underrated matches of this era? Yeah, they were great matches. And, and like I said before, I think all of the the matches that the Rockers had with everybody, they, they brought their A game every time. Amon wants to know, did Marty take offense when JR addressed his personal demons on commentary during his in-your-house match with Goldust? Absolutely not, because that was part of the story. Marty wants to know, ask Bruce to play Fantasy Booker with this question. Let's pretend Marty didn't have several personal problems in 93. What would Bruce have done with Marty after his feud with Sean was over? Did he see him as a single, or would Bruce have liked to have seen Marty leave the WWF at that time and repackage him with someone new as a tag team? Well, specifically, I don't know who you would have programmed him with, but I think that you could have gotten at least a year, especially at the time, uh, in 93, the way they booked, you could have gotten a year out of the program with Marty and Sean in every kind of conceivable match there was. Rich wants to know, was anybody else considered for the role of Leaf Cassidy in the New Rockers? <laughs> um, you know, we were playing with uh, Bob Holly actually was considered as well as Bart Gunn. Yeah, quite a few people. Steven wants to know, theoretically, if Pat Patterson were to lay on finish of the WrestleMania 6 match with the Orient Express, what would that sound like? I can't even do that. I, I, I would I would offend so many people. If I even did, you're gone, you hit the gimmick with the thing, and then, the, no, I can't even do it. I See, if I start to do it, I'm going to go over the top, and then that would be bad, and then I'll get chastised and be, be rated. Um, Amon wants to know, do you consider Marty Jannetty to be one of the most underrated talents in the history of WWE? I think he's one of the most underrated talents in the history of the business. Uh, hell of a hand and busted his ass and was more talented than he gets credit for. Well, that's it, boys and girls. That's going to wrap up our Rockers episode. Wait, you didn't think I was going to ask about Marty trying to fuck his daughter? All right, let's go to the Internet. In September of this year, Marty made a post on Facebook, and he says, If you loves me as much as I loves you, you will give your opinion. Just did DNA, parentheses, two weeks ago, dot, dot. She's capital N-O-T, my daughter, dot, dot. We both held out on sex because you don't do that, dot, dot. But now that we ain't, question mark, question mark, question mark, from a guy's side, dot, dot, she's hot, H-O-T-T, dot, dot. But she's been my daughter, dot, dot. I want to, too, but can't get past that, dot, dot. And then she posts a selfie of, or he posts a selfie of his I guess not, daughter. I'm sure you saw this. What do you think of uh, Marty Jannetty sort of asking his Facebook followers, should he or shouldn't he have sex with his daughter? I don't even know how to comment on that. That's just, you know, no. That's my comment. No. That's all you're going to give me? That's what the hell else is there? How? I, I mean, I, I don't know how you asked the question. I, 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 
No, you I, I no. I I have I have a lot of a lot of people that I would consider um, daughter like that I would not. You how can you even consider that? No, how can you even ask that question? No, that's my answer. No. No to which part? No, you don't want Ever, all of it. All of <laughs> all of it. Posting on Facebook, asking that question, having that thought. No. Marty would later say that uh he was hacked or something like that. And he says, Breaking news for all media. No sex with daughters. I'll be limiting okay, what good. I say here due to attorneys' advice and lawsuits in progress. Okay, well let's hope he was hacked. I'm really disappointed you're not going to give me anything on Marty taking a poll. You know, we do polls on our show. <laughs> we ain't never going to do one like that. Marty was taking a poll about whether or not he should give a poll to his daughter. No. Hypothetically speaking. No. I want you to pull up your Google machine and just type in the word Marty Janetti space. It'll give you some suggestions. You know, I'm old and it takes me a while to do this. All right. As you're doing it, I should encourage our listeners. If you want to go ahead and Google machine Marty Janetti daughter and click on images, you see a rather hilarious photo of Marty Janetti at a bar, uh, with two ladies. Uh, yeah. He's got a handful. Marty is a handful. What's, what's the deal here, fella? Have you got Google pulled up yet? It's G O O. Yeah. Yeah, I do. But, uh, if you type in Marty Janetti, the first suggestion is Marty Janetti. The second suggestion is daughter. Marty Janetti, daughter Bianca. Yeah. And then Marty Janetti, Twitter, Marty Janetti, Facebook, Marty Janetti, daughter name. Oh. It's amazing that after this great, you know, run in wrestling and, you know, you could say lots of things about stop and starts and his shots with WCW and ECW and run with the new rockers. And then of course the awesome run with the original rockers. And he did so much and we're debating, is he a hall of famer? Where does he belong? You know, one of the most underrated ever, but you type his name in and this is pre us covering this. The very first suggestion is about his daughter because that's what people remember him by. Oh, it's sad. And we'll see you next week right here on something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard, Royal Rumble, John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.